0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: McCard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, just to next to Big pop, you'd be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of <laughs> sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
2: This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We are live on Business Radio, SiriusXM XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Looking out onto Locust Walk, the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk, on a snow day, fellas. It's not often, even up here in the north, that we have snow days. What the heck? It's a snow day. It's, mean, yeah, mean, I, It's I increasing in rate. I don't get it. Let's be clear. What I mean is... The university is shut down. Exactly. Emergency necessary personnel only. No classes. I like that word
1: considered necessary personnel. We're not. We're not. We're not. <laughs> they just let us do <laughs> they what they we just want to. Yeah, <laughs> Walked in. That's right. But you know, they didn't stop us. Here's a good analysis for those who want to collect the data. Which is, look at the number of for every time we close the university, look at what actually happens, and look historically mm-hmm. what it took to close the university and what it's taking to close it now because anecdotally, and we all know about anecdotes and recency and blah, 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 but at least anecdotally, it appears to me that the closing of the university is far more trigger hair trigger than it used to be kids these yeah. days kids these kids days, these these days. days. <laughs> great, i used great. to walk
3: <laughs> 12 miles uphill both ways in the well, snow to host this radio show it was, in canada of course some of that yeah. might be
2: true because you were raised in it's Cal- true Calgary, it's i God mean says. yeah the,
3: the the amount of snowfall that we anticipate today is under <laughs> underwhelming for the fact that we're the university's to get closed. The best,
2: to best forecast. Best forecast is three inches. So three that's inches. apparently, what it takes to shut the, Hey, by the way, university. Yeah. Oh no, the uh, the city public schools. They were announced at like six o'clock yesterday that they're shut down. I mean, I mean, this isn't just a university. Thing. Right, like Philadelphia. All right, okay. That's enough whinging about that. You guys, jump on. Give us a shout. Give us something else to complain about the numbers. What is that o- word? One eight four four Wharton. 9 one 942 7866 Or email us, businessradio at sirsxm.com, businessradio at sirsxm.com. Or give us a shout on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter is at WMoneyball, at WMoneyball. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner faculty all here at the University of Pennsylvania. We are three of the four collaborators from Wharton Moneyball. Our fourth Eric Bradlow is off today doing Eric things. Guys, we were on a good streak. I think we were something like... Six five straight weeks, five, six, six. six weeks. Was that was that has been—that's our longest streak in five years, for sure. That we were all four. So we're three this morning. I suspect that's still going to be fine. I think I'm—you know—usually, Audie, I learn words from you. Winging, i have never heard of. What is How this you, word? What is the provenance of this word? I can't tell you. Provenance. It's a British. It's a British thing. It's it's a variation on whining. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a British word. I can't. I'm just delighted because yeah, I'm always picking up words. Audi Winer is the most erudite of the That's word, good word. ball uh, hosts, and he's he's one to pay attention to. And I'm 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 surprised that Winging is new to him.
1: This is a sports analytics
2: show, and we're talking about weather and vocabulary. That's not okay. What do you got, fellas? What has caught
1: your eye? in the world of sports. Oh, well, you know, you're hanging out with, with at least half of the heavy baseball crew here, so...
2: And it's that time of year, too. And it is that it time is. I mean,
1: l- Listen, if it were Eric were here, we'd be talking all about basketball and the All-Star game, which was like 200 to 250 or something. Uh, it probably wasn't, but it felt like it. Yeah. But I know that that, that, that that I care about the the contracts in baseball. And well,
2: tell, tell us what's going on, because we finally broke the free agent ice, <clears throat> apparently, this week.
1: Yes, and we might get a settlement on our uh, 13.5 over-under for the Machado plus Harper years of contract. Okay. We got 10 out of Machado well, so it's they looking were flying pretty. over. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to probably fly weren't we all, over.
2: weren't we all under on that thing? Uh, most, I, I th- I'm pretty sure respond. I was
1: under I was over and I, oh. I, well, I can't swear by anything because you know okay. r- being sure about things these days is not a good plan um so but he went for 10 years and it was 300 million there was, we, we were we yeah. were wondering whether that's the the g- biggest contract and well, what measurement that is the biggest contract people say it was <laughs> but you know well, I
3: keep w- seeing that there's the largest free agent contract in the history of sports and I I, it, I I think it just depends on how you measure that right because the Stanton contract was more actual money. A few yeah. years ago. Then, then
2: by what measurement is this the most? I, exactly. Well, I, I mean, um, I, it,
3: average annual value, well, wasn't, I think, a free or, or,
2: wasn't a free agent. Wasn't a free
3: agent. Well, no, that's right. But I mean, that's such that's a, a weird, weird cheat.
2: Fine, yeah. fine, fine, fine. But fine. yeah, okay, but, fine. But, but, it, it, but, is, it is a very large contract. The analysis and it's larger I s- than I expected. The analysis I saw afterwards, it was almost apologize. apologizing. You know, there were po- apologists stepping out and saying, yeah, this is fine. It's fine. You know, I heard a mm-hmm. lot of skepticism from you guys and People characterize the market as skeptical. And then I saw an article or two, anyway, that said, look, he has 26. And he's like, I don't know, Machado's yes. like, the, his numbers are the only people who compare to him so far in in, in his positions are, like, Hall of Famers. Like, four exactly. guys, three of yeah. them are Hall of Fame, and one's not yet eligible. No, he's
3: it both him and Harper are kind of unique ca- cases. We weren't quite sure how to appraise this going in, because it is not at all usual that somebody this talented... Um, with this
1: much track record, is also available out as a free agent, right? He's played for six years. He's a, he's an infielder with power, and those two things are rare. He plays his position well, although there's some debate about how well he plays it and how hard he's willing to work. But he's a terrific player all around. He's, as I said, the comps. Mm-hmm. If you use the the um, the players who've produced as much as he had in his first five years of, or so of, of baseball, they are mostly Hall of Famers. So you're looking to to, to line up for ten years essentially the fat part okay, of the guy's but, distribution but look as
2: a as an outsider you i feel like you're on the other side of a coin you've been you've been talking about for the last couple of weeks tell me if you were a general manager of the Padres would you have signed this contract for him um yes or no, no yes or no shame no. yes or okay, no no i mean
3: my 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 short answer is no but i mean i could i could probably be talked into it in the sense that you know given this sort of stretched out free agent process it it's possible, though, it's hard to think about it in this way, that he, this contract actually kind of undervalues him, right? I mean, there didn't seem to be this sort of usual kind of bidding war that you get for free agents of this caliber. Um, So... I could get talked into it. So I, I don't if you're think ever going to sign a 10
2: year 300 million. This was That's the year right. to That's right.
3: And, and you know, I, I what what fascinates me is in, in particular it's the San Diego Padres that made this move, right? right? They are not what any of us I think would We're not consider a big, market. a big market team that does these kind of splashy signings. But this is the second year in a the row they gave out the biggest contract of the offseason.
2: Who was last year? Eric Cosmer. So, it, it, is it surprising that Machado would choose the Padres because these guys usually go to I don't know. It seems like they go to the fancier franchise they a year for 10 fanci- years to live in San fancier, Diego. I could talk myself but, 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 into that. But they too. weren't offering. Okay. This is the thing. Does that yeah. does that reveal that the market really was thin?
1: It is thin. I mean, listen. So so the the Phillies are of course everybody's cryptic these days, and everybody was hoping that Phillies would get one of these two. Now the the Phillies are a team that are that are. Poising to get back in the game, right? They've been, they've been, uh, they got rid of some. They're now hired, they, they got, they got Arrieta as a free agent. They're building up their bullpen and their starting rotation mm-hmm. and they've got good youngsters. So, do, so are the Padres, by yeah, the way. Yeah,
3: no, I mean, they, the Padres employees are kind of in the right. same position that they've kind of been rebuilding, rebuilding. for a few years and he's they got a lot it. of good young talent and now you're and looking that's for, kind of the that's the type of team you would want to add exactly. a couple no, okay. of missing pieces the Phillies too. are a bigger market
1: okay. and and but the issue with the Phillies is do they think it was too much and they're arguing cryptically that they just thought that he's not worth that amount of money and they could use that machado. money machado mm-hmm. i actually think also there's 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 two other pieces in the Phillies game there's harper and then there's the big t what is the big t mike trout Mike Trout is a Philadelphian. Well, he's in New Jersey, but he's that part of New when does Jersey. When come up? Next year. Really? And he's also going to be ridiculous. He has signed an extension, so he'll be a little older. But he's Mike Trout, widely, yeah. obviously regarded I mean, as the best player in okay, baseball but, now.
2: Okay, tell me, this raises the question of kind of the st- strategy piece here and the competitive piece here. It sounds like the big guys were kind of not in the market this year. The Dodgers, Yankees, Red Sox. Were these guys not really going after these big guys? And if that's the case this year... Might it change next year? Would, would you yeah. rather sign? Would you rather? <clears throat> would you rather get Harper without the competition from those cities, or be in the market for Trout, even if you've got the hometown advantage? But you've got to fend off these other guys.
3: No, and I mean that—that's an excellent question. I mean, I'm fascinated by what the Yankees and Red Sox and and Dodgers were doing. Are doing so, this offseason. So
2: by the way, they... it's, it, my, Matt's telling us that it's not next year that Trout becomes free agent. It's the year after 2020.
1: Okay, 2020. All right. So it's uh, the thing is is that I'm actually rooting for the Phillies to sign Harper, mostly because. I think he's a great player. I think at $300 million, he's potentially undervalued, believe it or not. And uh, I think that he would bring a lot to the Phillies. I also think that in order to win championships as opposed to be competitive, one needs to make an investment. There is a dollar... Cost of return, the return on your investment that is very good in the beginning in terms of wins, but at the top it starts to diminish, and you really need to pay for those extra wins or get you know some really high strikey uh, rookies and youngsters who are much more value than you expected.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I just to sort of like build upon that, I think uh, we've certainly seen over the history, recent history, of baseball that spending a ton of money does not guarantee you a championship. But not spending a lot, not spending money does really, you have to get super lucky if you aren't going to spend a lot of money. Yeah, it happens. It does no, happen. But, I mean, but you know, it's
2: more, more than more than I mean to win it, yes, but to to be competitive, no. So the A's keep on making the playoffs mm-hmm. with spending nothing. The Indians yep. are a small market team, and they they not only make the playoffs, they you know they came within an out of winning the whole thing a couple of years.
3: That's ago. right. That's right. So it, it can happen, but you know, I. But those spending, teams are those
1: are two of the smartest the teams Philly, in baseball. And, but Phillies have money; they can spend it. They got a rich yeah. owner and a decently large market. People who care. <laughs> I mean, come on. Okay, so, yeah. And so I tell mean, me, you like Harper? I do like so, Harper. But Tell me,
2: so, I mean, Harper and Machado. You know, it was it's all market. It's been those two guys. Yes, yeah. and they're looking at the same size contract, et cetera, et cetera. But compare and contrast them for me.
1: And you seem to be. I will. You seem to be bigger on Harper than Machado. well, I mean, Machado's already signed. It's it's. But, it's, but no, it's, no, no, set that aside. Well, I'm, I'm bigger actually, on Harper because people are more down on Harper. So and this allows me Audi to be out- a con- natural contrarian of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, naturally. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things about that I think that that is important to bring to the table is the how analytics has played a role in the evaluations of these two players. And what has really changed over the years is the Reassessment of the value of two uh, two other pieces in a player's portfolio, other than their hitting, not only it's it's obviously their fielding, but it's also the position they play. Those are the those that's something that has never been historically wasn't particularly valued. So, in other words, people are willing to accept less performance out of a very valuable position like center field and like and like shortstop. So Machado gets a lot of credit for but being. Like, a you need to
2: rephrase that. I don't think it quite makes sense. That at least I don't follow it. So they're willing to accept less performance out of a more valuable position? Yeah,
1: less, less batting performance. Less batting, batting performance. So specifically out of a tri- defensive-intensive position. Okay, good, right. that's what I so, yeah. so historically, it was all about batting, and there was just nothing else. And you, a DH can count on as big a contract no. as a center fielder. No one really understood or the, uh, the intricate or delicate relationship between the position, what we call the positional effect, and the actual fielding value. So... A positional getting a lot of contribution out of an infielder, particularly a middle infielder, is very rare. And Machado Pla- plate, offers a lot plate of production, plate production. Mm-hmm. Getting a lot of plate production from a middle inf- infielder or a middle outfielder, which is center fielder, or a catcher, or a catcher. It's essentially guys the middle. In the middle. Yeah, the yeah. middle are very hard to get a lot of batting re- production. By the way,
2: from. Y- y'all first started to- talking. At least I, on this show, I first heard you guys talk about this with the catcher out of Minnesota who just retired, Joe Mauer. But his, his replacement, it was this funny thing where he was so much more valuable at catcher than first base yes. or something mm-hmm. like that. That's yeah, right. That's you could get right. a lot of plate production out of, out of anybody at first yeah. base. You can't out of catcher.
3: And one of the reasons players get more less valuable as they get older is they often have to switch position. They have to kind of go go down this defensive spectrum where you know they go from more... You know, kind of fielding intensive positions to less fielding. They move intensive. to the periphery. They move so, to the periphery. So a player, the a player with the same hitting production can become less valuable one season to next if they change from being, that's you right, know, a center fielder to a first baseman or and, something like that. And
2: what you're saying is that
1: that's appreciated more now than it used Way to be. Way more now. I think so.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I think Audie's right on that.
2: But
1: there's still research to be done, and there's still some, I think, some some openings. So one of the reasons why Mike Trout becomes is so valuable, where does he play? Center field. How does he play it? Extremely well. Maybe even above average. And he's competing against people who are very fast and are able to just get, get uh, fly balls ex- exceptionally well and he's as good as they are and mm. he's the best hitter in baseball mm-hmm. and he runs very well. <laughs> so what he's got everything going for him. Machado is a shortstop who fields decently and there's some arguing uh, argument about how third baseman right? right
3: Hasn't he been a third baseman for
1: the last no, couple of years? he, he has been he's, saying... he's more comfortable at shortstop. He's been at both positions um, and it's not clear where he's going to be used but I think if you're going to use him you really should be using him at shortstop that's where you get the positional value and he fields it decently he is not as good at at the plate as harper if you look at hard hit balls and just total valuation walks and and obp and ops things like that harper has consistently outhit machado and and by a considerable amount but if you look at the the total sum of the value most people think of machado and harper at equivalent of even machado even being more that's why i'm i think harper is mm. a good bargain the, the reason why people are down in Harper, and this gets to something that Shane and I did work years ago, I think pioneering work, Shane, I, I, I'll call it that, All right. which was evaluation of fielding. And people really don't value Harper's fielding highly. And the uh, paper that we wrote um, 10 years ago at this point – How did you evaluate fielding 10 years ago? Well, that's a story. Oh yeah, we can go. We can trip back down
3: memory lane about what what kind of details. 30, Thirty seconds, guys. <laughs> uh, well, basically, they're used to prior to the kind of video-based system that they have now for measuring fielder positions and 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 you know balls and play, etc. Um, there was a person essentially sitting in the stands of the stadium, marking on a laptop Get where out. the ball landed. Sort of, you know, or manually, watching it on video, or watching it on video afterwards. Okay, um, and. And that data was... So, so
2: it's noisy. It's much less
3: precise than what you can <laughs> no get now. No hang time, no velocity. Yeah, you, you basically had where the ball landed okay. or, or was fielded. And, you know, a cup, there's a couple measures. There there was a kind of a discrete measure of how hard it was hit, like, oh, yeah. was it a bunt versus was it hit really hard? It was Dude.
1: very crude. But we did something which, which it still actually hasn't been duplicated. We didn't try to actually calculate how many runs you saved on the field in a given si- season. We essentially tried to measure how good a fielder you were in essentially a single number. So we looked... And we took advantage of averages. We recognized that the data wasn't all that accurate. So I couldn't actually evaluate on a, on a play-by-play basis how good a, a job you did. But I could look at the entirety of the season. And then we were able to do that. And we were able to take a, a, a assign a single number and tr- turn that into runs and value a player. And that's not what's being done anymore. There's still Now the data is really accurate. You can say, here's a here's a catch that you made that only 50% of the people make. You made a lot of them. Therefore, you get a lot of outs above okay. average. Okay. And that's a lot of those. Uh, information. Now, Harper had one of the worst outs above average of any outfielder last year, minus 13. And that's bad. Thirteen uh, over the course of the season, mm-hmm. he lost thirteen outs above uh, below. He was essentially, essentially below what's, average. What's the standard deviation across outfielders? Well, it's actually fair. it depends on how much of the season you play right. because if you play less of the let's, season, you have let's fewer say over a full season. So it's about five or six. Wow! Um, so it's it's and, and if you put that in terms of wins, that's about a win and a half. Good lord! He cost so his Harper team. Cost some, uh, that's cost what them that's or, what they're saying. Now I actually dug into some of that on, data. We
2: were, you said it was unclear what you just meant. The, the wins associated with one standard deviation is one and a half or the wins no, no, associated no. with Harper which with is Harper two, which is two standard deviations which is more.
1: okay yeah and he's an everyday player but one of the things that I, I dug into this data a little bit more deeply so just to give us uh, just to round that yep. picture
2: on Harper how much, how much did he contribute to wins on the, from production side
1: probably three to four wins so he wins. was only
2: slightly positive net
1: yeah that's what that's what. if you look at Van Graaff's war he's, he was lower than Machado and not particularly great because they're killing him for his poor production in the outfield. If I looked at the if the if I looked at the average of the top 10 players in
2: the league and maybe 10 on each side, maybe 10 each league, what would be their average war
3: Oh, the top 10 players in the league would be you Sounds know, like an over-under f- segment. Four, five, six, right? Like four, five. five or six. Five. Yeah. Yeah. The average five, of the top five, 10 would be five. 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 And yeah. you're
2: Maybe. saying Harper nets out to be plus one or two.
1: According to... Yeah, the, and there's the, debate the, on this. So there's... War is an extraordinarily va- volatile instrument, which is an estimate, and people disagree on how to calculate it. Right. And so Harper, how you evaluate Ward last year is is some, some, somewhat controversial. Okay. Because he had this really bad defensive year. That's At least allegedly. Now, one of the things that I discovered when I... D- into this data is that he played about a third of his games in center field and these outs above average are extremely biased in favor of the center fielder and and if you're not if you're playing center fielder and you don't belong in center field and you have a lot of opportunities it's terrible. Okay. So he was bad for the Nationals in center field, no doubt, but he was out of position. It's almost like taking someone who shouldn't be playing catcher and put him behind the plate. Yeah, yeah, okay. And you'll mm-hmm. just rack up lots of um, losses. Center fielder has to be fast, has to be get good jumps, and has very difficult plays to make. And Harper didn't make them. Okay. But when he's in right field, he's perfectly average. <laughs> <laughs> which is compliment. Which is a compliment. Which is compliment. Yeah. And yeah. so my you, view that's is, all you want out of a guy yes, who hits as well as he Yes. Does. Does. And so I actually think that the market for Harper getting to close the story is good because as, people are as under. Long,
2: as long as you can play him in right field.
1: Right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And
2: Philadelphia presumably could do
1: that. Uh, he does not belong in center. Just get that out of your mind. Okay.
2: That's interesting. So th- this war thing gets pitched around as if it is this objective truth. Yeah. And and and, and consensus on how to do it.
3: No, no. And I, and I think it's part of you. I mean, this is part of how we are as a society now that if it, if it's numerical, we kind of think of it as objective. Yeah. And and precise, you know, especially if, you know, you you present war as, oh, his war was, you know, 8.13 last season. I mean, that sounds like it, I mean, that kind of precision makes it sound like it's very accurate. When, when, when in fact, I mean, there's a lot of of uncertainty that goes into that valuation. And especially, as already said, on the fielding side, that's the part that I think we find the hardest to evaluate. We're, We're... we're pretty... I think we've done... We've solved hitting. I mean, maybe we haven't solved hitting, Well, now but, they're going to
1: the ex WOBA thing, which is they're looking at hitting not just in, as a counting stat, but they're looking at it, how hard you hit it at what elevation and what angle, and they're just saying... Right, okay. So I guess we can
3: get even more sophisticated about hitting, but hitting is something that I think we, we do a pretty good yeah. job... I mean, if you ranked players by their hitting, that list would be not nearly as controversial as the one that you would do with fielding.
2: Well, and and, and what about pitcher side that's the big other one because one of the compelling things about war is mm-hmm. that you can blend pitchers that's and position compelling, yeah. and you can
1: add uh base running and arm and everything can get aggregated into one scale and compare everybody against it but it's an estimate and with estimates come variance and that means it's not necessarily what you think it is right so just to
2: just to play this out and just indulge me while i'm guilty of this top war last year bets 10.9 trout 10.2 and then chapman a pitcher 8.2 Harper, 1.3. According to this yeah. metric, whatever, who's ever mm-hmm. wore war this is, this is Chapman. Oh, it's not, it's, yeah, third baseman. That's Chapman Matt. Yeah, I was going
1: to say, I would have been surprised if. Okay, my By body. the way, all Errors. of them are extraordinary fielders. Uh, yeah. So they're getting there. They're getting there from that. Look, side look at side. J.D. Martinez. The guy won the goddamn World Series for the goddamn Red Sox. What's his war? Yeah. <laughs> it's no, like it's five high, yeah. five i that mean he's be. the best hitter in a damn baseball <laughs> as a just pure hitter. i mean you know i and, mean maybe trout but God, ridiculous and and somehow he's half the war i mean that's the way the system works
3: okay. yeah so i mean that is a good, <laughs> good observation that jd martinez i mean on the hitting side of thing was well you know basically Relatively. equal he's being two right guys <laughs> but did have half the war
2: all right so this is wharton Moneyball. we're in here this morning, Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. You guys can join the conversation. 1 844 Wharton, 1 844 942 7866. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our account up there. Talking baseball free agent market. Guys, I want to ask some other baseball questions because a couple things have caught my eye about baseball over the last, I don't know, two weeks or so. But I, I heard, you know, supposedly the, the, at the owners' meetings or whatever they were, whatever the thing happened recently, they talked about some. Possible rules changes, mm-hmm. and then I just saw you know front page of ESPN this morning. There are rules changes on sign stealing, trying to get around sign stealing. They're trying to get around like <laughs> technology. You already you're not supposed to be able to do it. Like Severino
1: cost the Yankees a playoff win or two. He was what, tipping his pitches. Oh, is that right? Yeah, the well, Red Sox figured it out.
2: But they they've come up with stuff like you can't. They've banned cameras between the flagpoles, and um, they put all the in stadium cameras on a eight second delay. The only one with a live feed is the team's rep on the replay. And even this is my favorite part of the whole thing. So apparently teams have an official of some kind watching the replay. So I guess they can help make decisions or whatever. Mm. That's going to be live. No delay. But that's not okay because they can't trust these people. So there's going to be someone supervising that person.
3: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) This is the best system they came up with. (laughs)
2: All right. So don't tip your pitches. Uh, all right. All right. Okay. So <laughs> so, but, uh, so more substantively, more substantively. So some, it, this, go ahead, Chase.
3: I, I just want a clarification. They've banned all cameras between the flight, well, flight. Like not like people's phone cameras and stuff. No, I mean, like, like I mean you, you're allowed to you bring your phone in if you're look, in the outfield, I flew through right? Through this, yeah. They're talking about like, yeah, official talking about, cameras, yeah okay.
2: cameras for the team, the stuff that they've got posted. But look, I read that article quickly. But they, but apparently they talked about more substantive changes. So you guys will have opinions about this. I'm curious. Um, they're, they're even experimenting with a 20-second pitch clock in spring training. Let me put a couple other ones down. Um, I, I really am intrigued by this one. Um well, the universal DA should is probably been something talked about for a while. But how about minimum three batters faced per pitcher? Yeah, <laughs> those are the three that that they That's talked about That's going to be the, a big yep. change, so right? So tell me what so, you think. So
1: I love the twenty-seven pitch clock, twenty-second pitch, 22nd. 22nd pitch clock. Mm-hmm. Love it. The one of my favorite articles in five thirty-eight. I think it was five thirty-eight. Or they talked about it. Was an analysis play-by-play of two games thirty years apart, where almost the same things happened in it, yeah. and one game was. 45 minutes longer. And it was almost entirely oh, because fantastic. of it between pitch differences. Yeah. You just got to get there and throw the ball. And maybe it's the maybe it's the the batter's fault or the pitcher's fault, but averaging 30 seconds moving it down to 20 seconds is going to take a lot of time out. Yeah. So, so it's a great you, idea. You give me those numbers real quick. We throw 100 pitch
2: 150 pitches a game. At least 150. 150 pitches a game. So 10 seconds is 1500 seconds. How many minutes is that, you smart people?
3: Well, 150 pitches a game per side.
1: Per, side, yeah. per size, yeah, so, so three
2: thousand seconds. If you just shave yeah. ten, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. so, so there you go. Forty-five
2: minutes. That's more than forty. That's a lot. Right? Yeah. Wow.
1: No, I don't think it's thirty. I yeah, think it's I mean, 10, I
3: mean, it's probably twenty-five yeah, it, seconds. Yeah, I would say probably twenty-five seconds is more. What's
2: currently being okay. done on average? What's the enforcement mechanism? That's the umpires will have to enforce it. Basically, I think it so you probably, a, you probably
1: get a warning, and then when you go over it, you're going to get a strike. Or a ball, depending on who's delayed. There's probably the pitcher, so it'll be a, a strike. Problem, yeah, yeah,
2: no, you get a ball. I mean, you'll get, you a get, a ball get a ball against you. Right, right. Well, okay. So it must be. A, that's a whole new world to get used to, because right? you don't want to be pushing up next to that thing. Yeah. That means you're going to have to get in a rhythm of throwing it like 17 seconds or something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. They and do. What I mean, about what about when it officially starts? They're not doing it this year. I know. No, I mean like when the clock starts, like when the, when he gets the ball back from the catcher. Now, is the catcher going to be slow in how he throws it to him? Could be. Is it from Could the, be, hit, or the, the infielders of, or whatever, you know? The end of the previous pitch? Could be. Could be. But this is something they need to figure out, right? Yeah. I mean, this is...
3: Well, right, and I think that that, that implementation, because they already have the clocks in the stadium. They actually have now, you know, a display that, that starts counting down. I mean, again, I think... In, in between innings, of a clock.
1: And, yeah. Yeah. Okay.
3: Um, it just, it doesn't seem, and, and they already kind of have informal rules about what,
1: it should, right. They're also talking, about, they're be, also talking just, about shorting the number of um, of warm-up pitches that a pitcher throws before yeah. when they come in. They take a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. These and, are all, and, they,
2: and they change pitchers so much They more. change
1: pitchers a lot. I mean, yeah. the truth is is that one of the things that we understand about training and preparation, they throw a lot harder because they pitch much shorter stints. And they also recognize that in order to throw that hard, one has to recover. So you just can't – I mean, if you're just tossing the ball, soft tossing it or at 80%, 90%, then you don't need that much in between pitching time to recover. I see, yeah. But when you're throwing with 100% of your, your power, that's tiring. You need to you know futz around the back of the, the mound for a while, get your strength back, try it again. Yep.
2: Yeah. So one of the nice things about baseball is they've got these minor leagues they can experiment in. So they've been using this in AA, AAA ball for a while. We, we, our guest, we have a guest at the bottom of the hour yeah, here, maybe in got... studio who was a pitcher, and we're going to get we maybe get some perspective from him. What about these other considerations? So one, I, I, the yeah. universal DH. Universal yeah. DH. I mean what what do you I what do oh, you think about it Come on you know
1: what I think of it you like it? No, you don't like. I, li- I don't it. like Curious. change.
2: He wants. He wants. To, like he wants to get rid
1: of the DH. He wants right. to go back
2: to make those. Make all the pitchers bat, Ugh. like they did
1: in the fifties. No, Ugh. actually, you know what? It's it's gr- it's what you grew up with. So I grew up watching the DH in the in the AL. So I'm perfectly comfortable leaving it exactly <laughs> the way it is. I'm an old curmudgeon yeah, at this it's point. Just, it's yeah, an, I mean, I grew, idiosyncras- I grew up
3: watching pitchers hit in the NL, and they're terrible at it. So yeah, no, I, I'm, I know, I'm as, all I'm all for a universal DH I, as
2: an outsider it just seems absurd you drop into a, you know one of the three baseball games i watch a year you drop in and if it's an nl team in an yeah. nl park it's like why is why are we wasting our time with
3: this? yeah I, I was sitting there like oh my goodness the philly's got a man on base this is you know pretty what? exciting oh wait the pitcher's up you know what we i guess ask- i can go to the bathroom now
1: <laughs> you know what we should ask a pitcher a former nl pitcher what he thinks about hitting because maybe they could actually work on it well, some do, some do, and, some and, and they potentially are valuable. It makes yeah. the manager far more interesting. I like NL games. One of the things that has made the whole the whole difference between the NL and the AL is the interleague play. When we mm-hmm. were, when I was a kid, you saw the NL players at all, the All Star game in the World Series. That's yeah. it. They didn't yeah. play against each other, and there wasn't cable, so you could watch them. You know, any team you wanted. And I like that old system. I like it, it was telegrams from the West Coast. Yes, the they, took, it's okay. <laughs> they,
4: did, they took so long to get I'm in. I'm taking ripping, folks.
1: Folks, I'm getting it. I'm really. I'm sure. And sometimes the horse carriage wouldn't make it to the stadium, and you wouldn't see that
3: player at all. It's, it was a crazy time. <laughs> <It's>
1: just, <laughs> There's
2: dirt streets just oh, Okay, what about what about this three? by the, mo- the most. I think the most intriguing picture. one because,
3: because that's something that that's the most. Uh, Kind of unusual change, right? I mean, that's something that would be yeah. unprecedented in the sport. Righty-lefty I'm, matchups. I, I kind of and... like the idea of it. I'm, you know, just because I feel like you know these.
1: What if, yeah.
3: these like kind of left these like one out specialists or whatever yeah. pitchers I, I I don't know you I know think
1: what it, it, on average it'll make little impact but in extreme it'll probably change things a bit because there are games where you see 10 p- pitchers coming in mm-hmm. particularly these playoff games yeah, the playoff game. and and so and they it'll can take, take forever as well, so there will be I mean, some speed up in, I assume the, is in, the intent. in the playoffs and the external events but on your average game it won't make one bit of difference yeah.
2: okay uh, one, another question maybe our last question for the first segment again baseball though Shane one of your boys a Apparently, Craig Kimbrell might not get signed. Now, this guy, yeah. he's an All-Star Certainly seventh. won't get
3: signed by the Red Sox, Well, this is, like.
2: So tell me about that, because he had something like 13.9 strikeouts per nine innings, which is a great number. His career save percentage is comparable, if not better, yeah. than Riviera and Trevor Hoffman. Oh, uh,
3: he has had an a very illustrious career. We, I mean, I would say we might even start arguing about the Hall of Fame eventually for this guy. I mean, he has had an amazing career, and he just helped the Red Sox win the World Series. Exactly. Um and it's just, but, bi- but it's business. But I, well, I, I think it's partly business. The Red Sox do have the largest payroll already. They're up. They're kind of. They're very close to sort of that highest luxury tax threshold. So the
2: luxury tax has tiers, and That's the more right. you overspend, the it's got this convex tax system. That's right.
3: That's right. And um and I think basically the big market teams essentially are using that as a, as a, essentially a salary cap. That's what, what it's tier. acting <laughs> like, um because well, the, no team wants to go over it. Yeah, and. You know, even even with that kind of consideration, you you know, kind of noting that kind of consideration. The other consideration is Craig Kimbrell has had a wonderful career, but he at least over the second half of the season looked to kind of be slipping a bit, okay. and oh, he's wow. what thirty four now. He's old, okay, for you know a, a relief pitcher, okay, and if he was to take a one or two year deal then maybe maybe that something could get he worked wants more out. Security right but now. he would Got like, this is his sort of opportunity for his last kind of big contract. Okay. Whether he gets it or not, we'll see. But you know, if if a team off gets him for something like five or four or five years, I think that would you know, that's probably not going to be good on the back end.
2: All right. Well, terrifically interesting uh, what's been going on with baseball in general. I think there's a lot of grappling with what's going on with baseball right now. And it kind of makes it interesting. They're considering some pretty big changes. We spent the whole first half hour talking baseball. Um, it's that time of year. And uh, happily, we have a guest in the bottom of the hour who can talk a little more about baseball knows more than we do. That's for dang sure. Tim Cooney is in the studio with us today. Tim is a former pitcher in the major leagues and the minor leagues and he's also a MBA student here at Wharton. He's a first year MBA student, so this I suspect will not be his only time to visit us. Happy to have Tim here. Welcome, Tim, good morning to you.
5: Thank thank you
2: for having time for me. Glad to have you. Thanks for taking the time. We know you got a lot on your hands as a as a first year MBA. We try to keep
1: you guys pretty busy these days. Well, he's done with his stat course, which was you know Is that completely how we, time consuming. That's how we. That's how was yeah. very grueling. <laughs> grueling. So yeah. it's, how many former major league pitchers
2: are sitting through stats courses right now? Do you reckon? Hmm. Right <laughs> <would> now, say, <laughs> yeah, probably not not a ton right now. <laughs> not a, not a ton. On one or two hands, <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, it's an interesting little path you're walking we want to hear a little bit about it can you start us off with you went to prep school here in malvern so right in right in um, outside philadelphia and from the area then you went off and played a little college baseball for wake forest yep. is that right and yeah. you drafted third round draft which is just you know fantastic and impressive we talk a lot about the baseball draft around here and played in the minor leagues and the major league what can you can you give us tell us about your career and then we'll break down some of the some of the questions we have for you
5: yeah, so I'm a I'm a local guy. Uh, grew up just outside of Philadelphia, <clears throat> and as you said, played played down at Wake Forest for three years. Was drafted in third round. But were you the, drafted in high school? I was not drafted in high school. Not was, at all. I was a bit of a I was a late bloomer. I was I was probably thrown in like maybe the mid 80s in high school. So I wasn't. But really well, hold on, on a second. The draft let me just put radar. some
1: perspective because I just looked at some numbers from the ba- the Penn baseball team. So uh, they actually just put in uh, one of these high-tech systems, and we were looking at the results. Penn baseball team, the college pitchers, the best pitchers throw in the mid-80s. Really? That just puts some perspective. Oh, and you were only in the mid-80s in high school. Yeah. yeah.
2: I, uh, so I guess That's I pretty, guess that's pretty yeah, darn I guess fast. Is. Yeah, this <laughs> yeah, <it> is it <laughs> about a... the Penn baseball team as well? Yeah, How did you decide on Wake, and what's their baseball program like? It
5: Right now, their program's actually it's pretty strong. I think they're starting the season in the top twenty-five, like maybe number oh, well. twenty. So they're okay. pretty good. When I got there, though, they were kind of at a, at a they were at a low ebb. They were at a low. Oh, when yeah. you left, rebuilding man. when I left.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Wake's famously the smallest D one program, I think.
5: Right. right. Yeah, <laughs> I know for football, that's definitely S- for smallest D one
2: sure. university. Yeah, so, something like that.
5: Yeah. So I, it was. It kind of came down to them being in the ACC, and high school me. I really just the opportunity to play against like cool schools like Miami or Florida State. That was really all I needed, and, and retrospectively, I always tell people it is academics too. But uh, so at the time, you, that so you got a scholarship a really to case. play baseball at so, Yeah, so I got a scholarship, <laughs> and with baseball, it's generally partial scholarships. Mm-hmm. So it was a partial scholarship. They only have so many to give out. But uh,
2: but by the way, this is why. I'm a college football guy and this is why people go to like Arkansas or Texas A&M they're not going to win the SEC but they get to play the cool teams in the SEC they exactly. get to play Alabama they get to play LSU Yeah
5: and it's an incredible experience because as a it actually worked out perfect because as a freshman I wasn't um one of the best pitchers in the league by any stretch, but I because Wake wasn't that strong I got to play a lot. Uh-huh. So is that I all- responsible for you getting better, maybe? It definitely was. So I threw like eighty some innings that year and I was pitching against nationally ranked teams, so I developed a lot quicker than if I had thrown fifteen out of the bullpen for, you know, Virginia who's like a really good has a really good
2: program, so we should, we should talk about that sometime. Development as a function yeah. of experience. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't seen that. Makes the choices, much. but what
1: really interests me is so, so you you were a mid '80s uh, high school pitcher, mm-hmm. not no interest in the draft, and you didn't go to a top baseball program, but you played a lot freshman year. And then by the time you graduated or was it after your junior year you were a top a top MLB candidate so what had that happen? what yeah. what caused you to make that transition Yes yeah, so my
5: freshman year I was kind of my, my my stuff like my velocity and movement and all that was basically in par with with college and then my sophomore year in in the fall when we were doing our like team trainings and everything I had this spike in velocity I have no idea I still don't know why it happened I, I went from throwing like 84 to 86 to 90 91 kind of in a you know 2 or 3 month span huh. and things just changed a lot because you didn't that,
1: know what you did you didn't lift i think it didn't... was partial
5: well yeah we, we had a lot of training we did we trained a lot we lifted we grew two inches but yeah there was nothing really noticeable so mm-hmm. um even at the time it was like shocking i mean it was really exciting at the time but i kind of went from being that especially in college being kind of middle of the road velocity to at least as a lefty ninety ninety one. Is pretty pretty good in college, at least at the time. So, yeah, by,
2: by the way, that's if, to an outsider. It's interesting that what seems might seem like a small bump from the high 80s to the low 90s would would be that noticeable to make such a big difference competitively.
5: Yeah, I I think I think there's like a threshold where if you can throw over a certain speed, you your fastball then has it keeps hitters honest a little bit, so they can't. Um, they can 't like sit back and wait for an off speed pitch like they mm-hmm. have to be ready to hit the fastball so I think i got i think getting like over ninety basically for me at least kind of was that threshold so it changed it definitely changed like the way i I was able to pitch it made mm-hmm. me a lot more effective for sure
2: and at some point you had a decision to make about. Being, by taking the draft, moving, did you do? You have to declare for the draft as a player. No, or you so, wait and see what happens.
5: So baseball, you just wait and see what happens. There's okay. no downside. It's not like football. It's a little bit. It's less stressful. You just kind of wait and see what happens. But you had to decide whether to go for,
2: forego your last year in college,
5: right? And it's actually, it's not that hard. Ho- I didn't think it was that hard of a decision because they pay for your. They will, as part of your signing package, will pay for your fourth your last year of college, and. uh so when and then you you know you get you see where what your signing bonus is and where you went in the draft and I mean the odds are you're not going to improve your draft stock as a senior okay. because you have less bargaining power after that year. So for uh, me it was kind of like as long as I'm maybe in the top ten to fifteen maybe twenty rounds I'll probably sign because you can always go back and, okay. and finish it up. And then so. you got
2: drafted in the third round. I mean that's
1: yeah. that's fantastic. So on your so year, junior year or senior year? This is junior year. Yeah. Junior year, third round <laughs> draft pick. Starting yeah. pitcher? or You weren't sure you'd be a reliever, or what was they thinking about you? I was, yeah, I'd always been a
5: starter, and they had they had planned for me to be a starter. So, so how
2: did they characterize you? I see that you won some awards in minors for best control. That's an <laughs> a, that's an award. So you're you're like a Greg Maddox? I
5: feel, yeah, I feel like that. I think it was Baseball America that that gave me that award. It was. Uh, I, I think they went off. I think for
1: that they kind of just went off how
5: many walks I had.
1: Were they anticipating your statistical which? knowledge experiments and control, and you were you really understood? No, yeah, that was it. <laughs> that was it. Right. <laughs>
5: I I think they actually just looked at walks that year and I had like a really low walk figure because I'll be honest I don't think I had the best control in the whole system but I th- I think that they kind of they take out
1: the groups of players in the minors they, they consider prospects and then they and then they have, they, do, they
5: select from that group do, you know?
1: In the minors did they have the Statcast system and the and all the the, tra- the tracking yeah. and where you're getting all these charts about where you're throwing and how much movement and spin rate and so, s- they had that so they
5: they had the I think in my f- my first year in Double A, they had installed the TrackMan, which I think is they have in all the stadiums now. Yeah, no. But we had I, I'd never seen anything from it. I just it was like this big box up by the press box that everyone knew was there, but no one you never saw the output mm-hmm. from it. And uh, I honestly, even up to my last year with them, which was 2016, I don't think they were regularly sharing that info with players at any point. Although they would use it from time to time. If they saw someone doing something, like, egregiously, like, the big example was, oh, you have a low-spin fastball, and you're throwing, like, four-seamers. You should switch to two-seamers, or vice versa. You're throwing two-seamers, and you have super high spin.
2: Real quickly for our lay audience, describe a four-seamer versus a two-seamer and why the spin thing matters.
5: Yeah, so a four-seamer traditionally, the the name comes from the grip. You grip it over across the four seams, but traditionally a four-seamer – is a flatter pitch has maybe more what is would be perceived as rise from the hitter. It comes in flatter, maybe gets on the hitter a little bit quicker. So pitchers that throw harder generally will throw more four-seamers, and they can dominate off that pitch. The two-seamer, again, it comes from the grip. But so you've put your fingers right on yeah, top of the grip so, yeah, the, it, of the seams? so there's a million ways to grip a two-seamer. I don't think you'll ever get anyone to agree on the one way to grip it, but the concept is that you're only holding the two seams. For whatever reason, it helps the the seams help make the ball run a little bit more, so a lot of pitchers that maybe either don't have as great velocity or or just for due to the way they throw in terms of their arm slot or whatever they may throw the two seamer it's going to generally run a little bit more horizontally and maybe have a little bit of a sinking action mm-hmm. to it mm-hmm. and. Typically induce more ground balls, but there's a lot of variety in, in both those pitches. And you're saying at
2: that stage, you're in the Cardinals organization, which has always been lauded as a you know mm-hmm. you know kind of analytics forward. They were early in on that movement. You're saying it, it when you were playing, which wasn't that long ago, yeah. that they weren't yet pushing the data down to the pitchers that much, only by exception, really. That's
5: right. Yeah, I I think that their their reputation in analytics is deserved, but it was more on the management side where they do a lot with, like I think I think they've done a l- really well with, like, contracts and, and, like, evaluating players. Okay. But at least when I was there, they weren't doing a ton in terms of player development with that mm-hmm. data, which I don't okay. think hardly any teams were doing at the time. I think now they Yeah, you may have they just are. sort of
3: hit this window where they, you know, they were installed and collecting the data, but still yeah. trying to kind of figure out yeah. what, what they wanted That's to right. do with it That's and right. maybe you some of these like things like the four seamer versus two seamer thing were like a few early things that kind of popped out that they were willing to kind of, you know, share with the, but the
1: players. But these can be career saving because I can tell you that at least in some of the organizations where my uh, former students and friends have have worked they 'll put a student or a, or a young analyst on a single pitcher and they'll look at everything that they're doing and they'll say and they don't talk directly to the players they t- speak to the coaches and mm-hmm. they 'll say things like you know this pitch is w- really working really well for you and you're underusing it or this pitch is really not working well for you and you're overusing it and you should really change the the collection of pitches that you're using because mm-hmm. you don't re- necessarily realize where you're getting the most outs and and that's what some of the analysts are now doing and it's interesting to know that the at least at the early stage the the players really just weren't getting any of this. Tim, how does that strike you to be told? As a, you know you're, you're, you're out of the yeah. league now.
2: Yeah. You played five years, six years, yeah, and, in, a couple years in the majors and a couple years in the minors, and, and so that's a serious, seriously wonderful career, but you're a couple years removed from it. How do you react to an, a, a statistician saying, "Hey, let me give you one of my former Who's students? To tell by you, the way. to <laughs> tell you about your game. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this former students?
3: No. His former series? <laughs> <students>? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like you wouldn't have seen him in this scenario you. either. It's sort of like no, you communicated wouldn't meet via a okay. coach no. or something like no, that. No, but right?
2: but also, like I'm curious about your reaction. I'm also curious about how can you tell us the average pitcher mm-hmm. is going to react to mm-hmm. the, the analytics community saying, hey, let me tell you about your game. Let me tell yeah. you what you need to do differently based on what I've seen on my computer.
5: Yeah. I, I think that is, that is a tricky situation because for, I guess, a lot of reasons, I think the biggest is that – A lot, a lot of people, a lot of pitchers have had success up to that point, or or hitters, or anyone, and being told by someone that doesn't have never been with them while they're training or developing through the minors or whatever on how they need to improve, I think it's a little, it's it's tough to process that. I think a lot of people want to stick with what works, basically. So that's that's worked exactly. I think that's one thing. Um, I think another is that. A lot of people, th- despite maybe having a base level understanding of what, what analytics and say and how numbers are, you know, helpful, can be helpful with sports, they don't fully understand it or fully wrap their head around it. So it's a little bit um, harder for them to accept maybe right. input from someone that didn't play or something like that. And there was definitely, I know what I saw is there's definitely a bias against people that didn't play. Like it'd be different, I think, for most pitchers if. A former major leaguer or a coach that had been there for ten years came to them with this information yeah. than if like the stats guy that the team had hired. For did sure. it for, well, that's
1: what they, that's the way they set it up. So the, yeah. the stat guy speaks to the coach or the actually mm-hmm. speaks to someone above them in the system. The head analytics person will speak to the maybe the GM or give that data. And then, I mean, this is – this kind of is makes a, its way it, it makes its way around. They do not speak directly, almost mm. never.
2: Well, yeah. this is also something that's evolving over time. Yes. Though, right? So eventually there'll they'll be, they'll be some guys who can talk directly. There already are some guys in the league who can talk directly. But it's just this interesting dynamic. It's this interesting moment where they have to figure out how to communicate across this divide. It reminds me of a story about Sig Meidel going – who was originally with the Cardinals, then moves to the Astros with Jeff Luno. And after being there for a couple of years, one of the things that they decided to do was to send him down to the minors. This is the top analyst in the organization. And he goes up to like upstate New York in one of the in one of their minor leagues, you know, single A, double A ball. And he's riding, he's spending all summer in uniform as a coach, riding the bus, talking to these guys. And I think part of it is you just said this thing that's really interesting. It wasn't the first thing you said wasn't that I don't want to listen to someone who's never played baseball. The first thing you said was, "I've been working my tail off for years. I've developed. I've put in the time. I've had success." I don't want to listen to someone who hasn't seen me do that. Mm-hmm. And and by sending Sig to the minors, they start having that conversation while people are still putting in the work and doing the development.
1: But one of the things that, that I would ask you directly, and you, you mentioned it. You don't you know this has worked for me up until now. Why do I want to change that? I don't think that a profession, a professional athlete, maybe realizes that the the level of competition is like a pyramid, and that everything you faced in the minors is just way way harder when you get to the majors. Mm-hmm. The hitters are much better, the pitchers are better. These people are m- much more experienced. And what worked? I mean, you could just maybe blow someone away with a slightly tailing two seamer. You get to the majors and you're you're toast. And maybe that's you need that extra advantage to really start thinking about what's the right combination. And maybe the Players don't see any value in it because they haven't been at the major league level yet. Mm-hmm.
2: Tim, you you crossed that divide. You you made that progression. You went from AAA ball to major league ball. What was that transition? Did you anticipate it properly? And how would you characterize that transition?
5: It was uh, it was definitely it was it tougher for me than I thought it was going to be. It's my first game. Uh, I always like. Telling this, but the story, but it was like one of my worst games. I pitched against the Phillies. Being from Philly, that made it a little bit extra nerve wracking. Uh, yeah, everybody. everyone. It was it was in St. Louis at least, so it was a little bit less nerve wracking. But I had like all these random people that were like accidentally at home watching the Phillies and like <laughs> texting me like, "Oh, I just saw you pitching against the Phillies." Wow. But uh, it was it was definitely mentally it was challenging, more challenging than I expected. Just the I think the gravity of like, "Oh my god, this is the major leagues. This is a big deal." Yeah. Um, I actually. Like, the actual game was maybe not as different as I thought. And I think being up close, you see Mm. that. The players Mm. are hands down better. They're significantly, I think, more athletic or talented or however you want to phrase it. But um, it was... uh, The the actual game, I mean, it it really is... Like, for each level, from minor leagues to major leagues, it's like a subtle march of of better at each level. It's not Mm. that drastic, but I think... Mm the fact that it's the major leagues and everything's on tv and there's all mm-hmm. this video mm-hmm. it's uh wow. it definitely feels a lot different so it felt a lot different for me
1: well you know uh, one of the things when when tim was when we were in my class i did a, a calculation of his war and i got him as over about a one war season he had for the cardinals that's a, that's pretty impressive Remember mm-hmm. bryce harper was 1.3 last year well, tell us about and a- he's <laughs> talking about 30 million right. so, so he got about a one war season that's, that's awesome. impressive season yeah.
2: where you're starting pitcher that year I was. Give yeah. us the stats on that year. What does it well, take? What does it? Well, let's. We're, by the way, we're talking to Tim Cooney. Tim is currently an MBA student at Wharton, but he was a major league pitcher. He had a five, six year, six year career in baseball coming out of Wake Forest. Um, some of the minors and some of the majors. He was a he was a minor league all star, um, and he apparently in his best season with the Cards, he had a plus one WAR. What does a plus one WAR season look like?
5: So my plus one WAR season was it was short, so I only had maybe thirty innings that season because I was called up mostly just for the month of July, and then I ended up getting sent down, and then I ended up being hurt for the rest of the season. But uh, it was – that I, I don't know the exact stats. I think I had like a ERA of like 3.5 maybe or something through 30 innings,
1: and mm-hmm. I'm not sure about the rest of the metrics exactly. A, a, a starting pitcher has enormous <clears throat> leverage because, obviously, they're extremely important and for the innings they pitch. And I think you had about four or five very good starts, really sizable good starts where you added about – a. 0.2 to 0.25 wins above replacement in those starts. You collect them together, and you get about uh-huh. that much work. Got it, got it, got it. So it, this reminds me
2: of this new pitching strategy that Adi here, your former professor, is a big fan of. And you, you, as a former starting pitcher, might not be such a big fan. So Jake DeGrom, not, was it Jake? No, Jake no, Jake no. DeGrom. Uh, no, it was, uh, the Sanford, it was Baumgartner. It was Baumgartner. <laughs> um he just came out saying, you try to... I'm a starting pitcher. You roll out one of your whatever you want to call them one openers. Eight, openers. You roll out an opener, and I'm not. Yeah. I'm walking out of the building. So the strategy, of course, is Adi. Tell us the strategy, and then let's and, get let's get Tim's reaction.
1: Yeah. Okay. So the strategy basically is to bring in not your starter, but your second or third setup man to start the game for one inning, and a setup a, a, gr- a very good setup. Now, not you don't have a back of the bullpen guy, and this is not your number one starter. They get to start, and the idea is that they face the top of the lineup. They yeah, give their all, and what you do is you you lessen the damage of the top of the lineup. That's why the first inning scores a lot of runs, and you also you also contribute by bringing in these closers. All their setup men all the time. You use them a lot more. Yeah. I, so
5: to me, I actually th- I think I've heard this concept, but uh, it makes sense to me. I mean, your face, you have your one of your best pitchers facing your best hitters. I can see why certain people find it. I don't know the word, whatever, however, bumgardner offensive or yeah, don't like it. Um, I don't see why it's. I personally don't see why it would be an issue. Like as a starter, I don't know why it would really matter if I know I'm pitching the second inning.
1: Would you be be happy coming in with a three run down three runs? Um, (laughs) Probably not.
5: Probably not. But um, I mean, if you to me, I'm looking at if you can prove it's going to help the team win the game. It like if there's some proof to it. I don't see why there's there's an issue. It's like maybe the same would be batting one of your better hitters ninth to turn over the. I don't know if that's statistically proven or not, but
2: but now we're on this problem of statistical proof because what what the statistician would consider proof is increasing the probability from 0.5 to 0.56, and we could do that. And and most coaches, (laughs) much smaller, most coaches and athletes. That's not proof. That's not proof. And 44 percent of the time, you're going to be wrong. So how do we? This is a general analytics question. You as an athlete. How, and we're going to have to have you back to talk more about Great question, Kate. <laughs> how, I mean, how do you think about persuading athletes, now that you're kind of stepping over to the statistical side here, and the, the use of data?
5: Yeah. <clears throat> that's that's actually a very good – that's a tough question. Um, because I think there will be a, there will be a lot of players that would not, would not buy into that. I think that's something that comes with – I think it's something that comes with time where mm-hmm. as – numbers and, and statistics become more part of sports and players can understand it a little bit better, even if it's not not directly what we're talking about, something else. I think it becomes easier maybe to introduce things like that. But, yeah, I, I see your point. Like, just coming to a pitcher or a, play, a team right now and saying we're going to do this, you could definitely face some backlash, and I think that's that's... That's probably the di- that's probably the most <coughs> difficult part with analytics and sports. Honestly, it's getting Tim, people. Tim, we're at the in. very
2: we're at the very end. Do you think you're twenty eight or so now, or the kids that are younger than you? They're pitching. They're coming out right now. Are they more open to these numbers?
5: D- definitely. You think so, they're
2: definitely even just yeah. six years younger than you, five years younger oh, than you?
5: Without a doubt, because one thing one thing we're seeing now is a lot. There's a lot more metrics on actual pitches and. Uh, people getting direct feedback and training. And I know a lot of young players are really into that. That becomes
2: very convincing. All right. Listen, Tim, really appreciate you taking the time. We're going to have to have you back. Maybe a longer conversation. Really really good stuff. Enjoy the start of baseball mm-hmm. and enjoy your snow day. No classes today. Yes. Congratulations right on is. that. <laughs> Thanks for making it in here despite that. And good luck with the rest of your first year. Tim Cooney, appreciate Thank it. Thank you, guys. That's Tim Cooney, former Major League Baseball player, first year NBA student here getting us up to speed on the inside world of baseball as we roll into the beginning of baseball season. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Audie and Shane. Audie Weiner and Shane Jensen, both stats profs. We are three of the four creators and collaborators of Wharton Moneyball. Eric is out and about today. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning talking sports analytics. You guys can join us, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or send us an email, at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, Twitter count, Twitter handles, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. You can send us questions, suggestions, complaints, over-unders, whatever you got, send it to us on at WMoneyBall up on the Twitters. We're just finishing a conversation with Tim Cooney. Tim was a former Major League Baseball pitcher in studio this morning. That was fun, guys. Adi, you keep on coming across these professional athletes in your classes. How do you feel about teaching stats to former
1: professional athletes? I love it, <laughs> quite honestly. You know, it's a combination what, of your favorite things. Yeah, the the, the the one complication is is that it. Uh, I used to assiduously avoid sports in class, feeling that it was you know not everybody was into it, and I just didn't want to give something more generic. I want to do something more generic, but it turns out that that very 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 few people react negatively to sports, and even when you don't know sports at all. It is something that most – if you keep it at a high enough level, most people are actually quite interested and some people are extremely interested. I think that's mm-hmm. the key is to keep it at that high level because yep. I, I also enjoy using
3: sports analogies because sometimes they are really a very good analogy for some statistical right. concept that you want to communicate. But if you get kind of mired down – You don't want to get and, weeds, If you have to yes. do a deep dive mm-hmm. on the rules of some game that only a subset of right. people have – Experience with, and you know, you yep, kind of lose might. the thread, and
1: you mix up the sports. You do soccer, you do basketball, you do b- yeah. That's yeah. critical. But here's the thing: that this should, uh, at a business school, one of the things that people don't realize is the the Moneyball book and some of the follow up books. They're actually management books. Mm-hmm. They're they're about analytics, but they don't really talk about the actual analytics. They're oh, about sure. they're about getting analytics into the business.
2: By, by the way, the, the book that came out last year about the Astros, uh, Astroball, Ben Ryder, R E I T E R, fantastic book. That book is a management book. It's about how to effectively pro, pro, um, proselytize analytics in the organization. But One quick follow up question off of Twitter. Mike S. He's got a long handle up there, but at Mike S. 1777 2735. Mike S. asked about the use of openers. What's the rule on setting your lineup? If you see a team using an opener, can you flip your batting order and start with seven
1: through nine? No. Why not? Because you take away at-bats from your top of the, of the oh, line. Oh, you could. Oh, so you it's, it's legal, of but you wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, but. I mean, you, you still want your best hitters batting the
2: most often. So what? what is the rule on, on setting lineups? So do you get to, like, see the ears and, and change? You can change as many well, times you, as you, you want?
1: You, well, you can, once you sub someone out, they're out of the game. The lineup but card what, is given to the umpires before the game starts. Includes seeing, the starting but pitcher. But what's the ordering on that? The like, starting, who,
3: who gives their lineup first?
1: And oh, do you, right? you, do you get That's to see it? Are
3: you allowed to see so the, you can't the other
1: You can't change it once... Right, if, you just have to you, assume they're going to do it. If I mean, you're playing a team that has an opener strategy, you might... You, you might want to try it differently. You, you, want, you to... won't know. You're absolutely right. You don't yeah. know if they're okay. actually using it. But I, it doesn't make... I mean, just to put it in context, you said it's 56%. It's more like 51.5%. No, yeah. Is it that small? It's tiny. I estimate that it adds... I tried to pick a small number. I estimate that it adds... Depends on who you have and how often you use it. Up to up to two wins a season. Up to it's probably yeah. less.
2: Okay. Okay. That's interesting. All right. All right, guys. Let's change gears. That's an hour of baseball, by the way. No. So oh, yes. Don't ever tell me. I'm idiot or something. Okay. We're going to talk about God's sport Noted. now. We're going to talk about football.
1: Uh, oh, God's sport. <laughs> that's right. Cynthia Freeland's joining us. Because you visit
2: God earlier when you play it. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true. Cynthia Freeland is joining us. Cynthia is the NFL media's first analytics expert. You can see her on any of their shows: NFL Fantasy Live, NFL Now, NFL Game Day. Cynthia will find out more about her background. But Cynthia Freeland, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And I have to tell you a funny secret. I only get to be called an analytics expert because it's a lot harder to say analytics analyst for people on TV. <laughs> so I got, a, I got an upgrade. I got a, like a, a title bump just because it was...
2: Hey, man, what, whatever works, Cynthia, just go with it. Don't fight that one. I can tell oh, you. Oh, I'm
0: not fighting it one bit. Uh-uh, I'm <laughs> all
2: about that. <laughs> where Where are you calling in from this morning, Cynthia?
0: I'm in Los Angeles.
2: Okay, so tell us how NFL media sets up. Where Where are your offices, and, and why are you in Los Angeles right now? Avoiding so the, the snow?
0: NFL offices are in Culver City, so it's pretty close to the airport, actually, um, right next to the Sony lot, if anyone's, you know, it's all kind of all around the same area. Okay. And then... Um, I live in, I live at the beach because that's what people from the Midwest do when they move to California, they move to the beach. <laughs> of course.
2: No. <So, laughs> why is NFL media is, I just, I just kind of assumed that you were going to be in New York. It feels like New York is kind of, I guess Fox is out there on the West coast, but what is it that takes you guys out to the West coast as a, as a home base?
0: Yeah. So about 13 years ago when the, when the media started, the media side started, the NFL network actually started, I think and I'm pretty sure just because I used to actually work for the league office in a financial capacity. So I'm pretty sure that the reason for starting it out here was access to other like more entertainment based assets. Uh, So bigger studios, it's easier to, it's very tricky. Like it's actually pretty cool the way all the different production houses like take in feeds and then redistribute them to, um, then how the network actually like just like gets it on your screen. So, um, here was was kind of like where there was not only a wealth of talent to run it, but also a wealth of actual access
2: to studios and things like that. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and Good
0: Morning Football is in New York. So Good Morning Football ah. does come out of Mount Laurel, New Jersey, where our films are, but it's filmed in New York. And then they ship that feed to Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and then it comes
2: to master that way got it got it got it all right so by the way we were in atlanta a couple of days before the super bowl doing a show down there and we talked to your your colleague bucky brooks and just enjoyed him immensely we had a great half hour with him down there oh
4: bucky's fun yeah, isn't he the bucky's best
2: <laughs> really 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 entertaining listen uh let's hear a little bit about where you've come from you've been with these guys since uh august 2016 so two and a half years into your stretch there um and you mentioned being from the midwest you're from is it Okemos, michigan Okemos mm-hmm. Yep, yeah it's
0: right next to East Lansing so it's right next to Michigan State
2: ah okay so tell us a little bit about your journey from right next to Michigan State in Michigan to NFL Media's in 2016
0: so my it's kind of interesting I went to Boston College undergrad not because I like knew anything about BC I, like you know I wanted like big city with sports and they gave me a math scholarship so it worked out um, and then so BC and then um, I went to did a little a short stint in medical school, which I, it wasn't for me. Okay. <laughs> so then I became a banker, which is what most people do when they drop out of medical school, <laughs> apparently. Okay. Um, and I went to, uh, I was lucky enough, and the economy was good enough, and I was lucky enough to get a job in private equity, which I didn't know anything about. So kind of self-taught myself how to model at that point, right? Like I what? didn't know what a whack was, and I didn't know, you know, why Warren Buffett was better at, You know, nobody does.
2: Right. So So hold on, Cynthia. Hold on, Cynthia. I don't. I don't quite understand how um, a a young lady from you know middle of nowhere Michigan drops out of med school, walks around Boston baking, and then into a private equity job. We have had good economy stretches here and there, but that's not. You know, that's not obvious. How does that happen?
0: I'm, I'm a really big dork, and in college, I participated in like some of the, I don't know if they still have them, but like McKinsey or BCG would have like these case study competitions on the weekend. And yes, I did those. Um, so I got a chance to meet and network with a bunch of people who were bankers and I didn't know what they did. And I didn't know because I was so focused on trying to get into medical school. Cause that's what if you decide your biology major and your sister's a doctor, then you just, that's kind of how, what you do, right? You just focus on that. So looking, looking at that, I, I met all of these different people they were bankers. I didn't know what they did. And they had an opening, and it was in Chicago, actually. And I got a chance to, to, to work for a small shop that was called Fusion at that point.
4: Okay. So just okay. based
0: on competing in those things and keeping in touch with some of the people that hosted them or funded them or what, okay. whatever. I think they're like sneaky recruiting things anyway. Yeah,
2: right. For sure, for sure. Um, all right. So, so, so there you are, private equity, a couple years uh-huh. out of school. We're, 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 how do you go from um, that we're still you got another big step to make from there to NFL. That's it's gonna be interesting.
4: So um,
0: in my first year of business school, I, just, I decided that I should probably like get an edu- business school education. <laughs> so um, so I started at the University of Chicago actually and in my first year I cold emailed the CFO of the NFL at the time who was Anthony Noto, who um, I had read his equity reports because he was at Goldman Sachs and he was like the head right. of research. And I had read all of his reports, and I thought he was really smart. I was like very interested in him as, as like a human, because I actually thought he had a really interesting personality. Very like strong,er like one of the smartest people, if not the smartest I've ever been around in real life. Where, wow. like he could just take these concepts, like super. He could explain like how players in the NFL get paid, like the shared revenue system, in like ninety seconds. Which is, <laughs> you know think about that, it's like okay. You're like, okay, that's amazing,
3: so, right? I could, I could, I could use ninety seconds with that guy. As it turns out,
0: <laughs> he you ninety seconds you learn more from him than like ninety minutes with me by far, maybe ninety hours. So he's the best. So I cold emailed him, and he gave me an opportunity, and um, so I got a chance to work on projects at the NFL um, in the finance department. Some of the things I worked on, one key one as it relates to analytics is what we call the season inventory. Um, they were looking at how to was it sixteen and two. 16 and four preseason games, 17 and three, 18 and two. So You're talking about how many
2: regular season games and how many preseason games as a package.
0: Yep. So mm-hmm. what's the optimal, obviously it was finance department, so what's the optimal revenue yep. that you can get for the season given that we have these windows with television contracts, etc. And And the, the thing that was really interesting was the competition committee was so willing to sit down and watch film with me and help me understand I mean, I, I, I had always been a fan of football, but understand from a coach's point of view, like what makes you believe you're going to win a game until the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. you know, or until the, the, the clock expires, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, if the premise is the more interesting games, the better, the better revenue, right? Like the more games that are good, uh, better TV ratings, better everything, how do we make the games more interesting? Mm-hmm. So I got a chance to sit with them and after I really started like watching film with them, speaking their language, like starting to kind of, instead of coming from this like banker sort of role instead I was like okay these people watch film and they have gold jackets so they know more than I know about everything so I'm just gonna like listen to their words and then try to make math out of it like mm-hmm. how the heck do you quantify a wastebender? bender you know like like those are that's a football term right like <laughs> you know like it's like stuff like that so you try to you try to figure that out so it was like kind of the first like seeds of analytics for me okay and then I had like, you know, whatever I'm saying, so on the radio, but it's cool. Um, I had kind of a health issue that made me take sort of what I'm going to call like a, I got to be, um, what I, what I think is, I know this is a, you know, Wharton people, you guys have a really great business school out there, but I think that, um, I might, I might have you beat because I started at U of Chicago and I finished at Northwestern. So I claim I have like the best, uh, the best MBA ever because I did the quant stuff with the quant people. And the, and,
1: the, and the marketing right? stuff with the marketing people at yeah. Northwestern? Yeah. That's a Are you saying step. that we don't have a great marketing department? <laughs> Eric Bradlow is usually yeah, here. I'm he saying
0: would. you have both, but I got the two
4: first you know?
1: yeah.
0: like, If you're going to spend that much money and time, like, you got to brag about it in some way. Cynthia. That's just really what what it was. Well but done. you're
2: bragging but, to somebody who went to, to Chicago, so I'm just sad you left Chicago. Why did you leave Chicago?
0: Um, the My health uh, situation required me to spend a lot of time at Northwestern Memorial, ah. which is right next to where Kellogg's school
4: of
2: stuff. So That's they were amazing. Okay.
4: Yeah. So, okay.
2: Uh, but by the way, so you've also got on your resume, the, the, the masters in science that they do, they do a Northwestern does this very interesting program in an,
1: analytics. You've got, you, you, I think it's on online. Is it an online program? or Is it a live program? It's a,
0: it's an online program. Yeah. Um, you can like, well, for me, I was very lucky because I was there and, you know, back in the day when you uh, have health issues and you still needed to be on health insurance, it was very cool to be able to add that um, <laughs> before, you know, previous condition situations. So um, it was very cool to add something that I cared so much about and gave me the space to learn how to code because that's really what um, differentiates a lot of us. Is it's not necessarily if you are the best at coding, but if you understand the capabilities and limitations of all the different right. coding assets out there right. so that you can create something that kind of makes the best of the math and then it takes it to the best of the code and then you are the fastest, right? So you can most quickly iterate as all these things are changing so okay. that you, was the best thing
1: did you grow up as you, you didn't grow up as a coder you didn't you didn't study coding in college or high school you picked that up essentially after
0: Exactly, and yeah. self-taught. with coding. And
1: self-taught. That's a great message because so many people, particularly at Penn, we see this a lot, mm-hmm. they sort of imagine there's a, sort of this quintessential you know, high school uh, hacker type who is going to be the coder, and then they come to college and they're like, well, that's not me, so I don't want to get involved. And We've been trying to backdoor a lot of our students into R, which is a, a principal statistical coding language, because totally. it's, in some level yeah. it's easier, it's also desirous, and it's, it works directly with, with... And
3: I feel like that self-teaching through kind of just experience and digging in is... is is actually, you know, I, I almost... I mean, I, maybe I'm biased because I, that's how I learned it that's myself. Learned I, 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 I i think that almost is a better way to kind of go about it than like you the know, class lot approach. of class.
1: Can you, can you weigh in on just... just I don't want to be, uh, drag no, the conversation, but... is exactly the
0: thing everyone always asks me advice-wise. This is exactly what... This is the first thing I say. So... Do you learn it's, R it's, or Python?
1: Can, we get, can you settle this for us?
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Both are... Which one
1: are you using? Or are you not using either? Oh,
0: I use... <laughs> I use everything. I use R, I use Python, I use all of the Hadoop like relational databases. I think I'm more into Hive lately than anything else, but whatever, Pig's great, too. Um, I love TensorFlow because I think that anything in terms of computer vision is the future, so you have to be able to understand at least the principles of what's possible for you, especially in sports. That stuff is all of this GPS location and all the data we're getting. You need to understand what the heck you're looking at, and so you need some TensorFlow in your life if you're going to do that. Um, so we're so gonna for me,
2: we're gonna come back to that and hear more, but please go yeah. ahead.
0: Yeah. So, but but ultimately, ultimately for me, it's it's about being able to understand. So, what my advantage is is that I read all the books that, like you know, Professor Massey wrote stuff like that that are these decision science books and all of these like very advanced stats books. The math that's I'm very math brain, but I'm like the math like more like piano, right? Like I can see patterns and stuff. Mm. So for me, it's like. I needed to have this thing that did it faster for me, so it inspired me to just learn enough to like be dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, w- I don't believe the premise of, when I first started in TV, which was late for me, I didn't, I'm not a broadcaster by trade, um, I didn't believe the premise that nobody, like, the rating system, we could talk about that for days, but like, it's so flawed, so, For me, it was a lot more about like, all right, well, what do people really want to know right now? We have some instant feedback sources like Twitter and Google, and you can actually hack the data to find like there's aggregated search results given to you by demographics that you can you can you can parse in such a way that you can see like, well, what are people in New York Googling right now? And then you can look for football topics and then you can address those on TV. So for me, it was like, you know, finding ways to like take things that made sense to me, like, you know. I'm getting this instant source of feedback what should I be tweeting about like I want to hit the most people possible right so right. it was all like everything from that to that's how I did it with TV but when it comes to sports situations it's like all right this coach cares so much about third down that I need to whatever I'm doing like I use like a momentum hedge fund situation so like that's kind of what my my some of my codes inspired by so I'm getting there and I'm like why well, I actually think first down is so much more important but I can't tell this coach who's a head football coach, one of 32 people with this job in the world. (laughs) You know, I can't tell him that. So how do I relate first to third down? So you write some code to kind of figure out how to say what you're trying to tell him in a language he wants to speak. So it's like, all right, I need to take my relational database. And I need to understand that I can go back and search for something sort of in a different way than I had organized it before because the structure of that allows me to be more flexible. Okay, hold so, on,
2: Cynthia. Let me stop you there and just make a couple yeah. of these things a little more concrete. One, you said this this thing that's kind of intriguing. You, you said this was a momentum hedge fund strategy. But you're talking yep. about essentially a persuasion strategy. So make that a little exactly. bit more explicit, the connection between momentum hedge funds and persuading an NFL coach about which down is most important.
0: Well, because so the momentum hedge fund, you look at recent – you look at recent trends and you apply it to like the current situation, you overweight the recent trends basically. So for me, I'm overweighting. So if I'm looking at that's going this against, this coach,
2: it's against fundamentals, you know, that it's not necessarily fundamentals, but the market is so strong in that direction that you want to capture a little bit of it, even though it may not be fundamentally true. Is that all right?
4: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So okay.
0: this, if you, if you think about third down, right? Like if a, a lot of coaches care, football coaches, they'll ask for the first thing they ask their quality control guys, give me third down, give me a red area. Okay. But the third down is a function of what happened on second down <laughs> totally. and what happened yes. on first down.
2: Yes, right.
0: So if you overweight the recency of like what happened on first and second down, especially in your game, and then you do the same thing for the defense, they're playing zone and they're, you don't have a zone beater. Right, right. And, they will, and you're just doing the same things. You have to be able to adapt. But if you're not, the word I'm going to say is seeing that because they see it. But if they're not able to mentally adjust, because they're so biased towards third down they care so much more about third down than they care about first or second down that they'll be in like third and 13 way more often if they don't adjust on third and second and or first you know second and first down but you can't
2: just come straight out and say that to them you've got to figure out no
0: you think that's gonna work you think some like some old man's gonna be like Hey, little girl,
1: you think this is gonna go good for you? <laughs> well, do you actually get? You don't. Who do you speak to? I mean, there's. We were talking earlier with uh, with a former Major League Baseball player about the his his um, conversation with analytics, and he didn't have that. I mean, there was a there's a, a wall between the analytics or and the actual know, at least decision inter- a wall or an intermediary, right? Or two. So so, so you, you know
4: baseball too,
0: and that's like the one that's the most advanced. Because exactly. I, I know for a fact that's team dependent, right? Like my, I have many friends in baseball and they're becoming more and more transparent with how they're measuring players mm-hmm. and the, the best coaches and front office guys will work together to be like, Hey, we're noticing something about your swing. Um, let's measure it here. Let's do, and they use it as a tool to help them as opposed to be like, we're not going to give you the Manny Machado comp- you know, situation with the money. So like, right. that contract's not for, you know, like. So it's not as negative as the the people who are doing it right especially in baseball they are actually talking to players now about it in very positive ways. I know tons of bullpen coaches who are actually saying to that they're they're not saying it like all right so we did some you know we 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 looked at your residuals from like what you know like they're not telling them like we used the poisson regression and we <laughs> you know they're not doing that right. but like they're going up to them and being like hey like we need to fix something with your swing. Like let's work with your right. swing, to, you know, something like that. Right. So so um, we're talking to,
2: we're, we're, let me reintroduce you real quickly, yeah, yeah. Cynthia. This is Cynthia Freeland. She's NFL Media's first analytics expert. She's on a number of programs there, NFL Media, um, NFL Fantasy Live, NFL Now, um, NFL Game Day. Uh, Cynthia comes out of uh, the Midwest, and she did some graduate work in Chicago at both University of Chicago and Northwestern. She's been in her current position since 2016, and you must really be at the frontier of – a very interesting movement in sports analytics i mean we're seeing a big jump in football analytics right now and Mm -hmm. it feels like the nfl has finally kind of taken almost an evangelical role in this and so they're kind of getting ahead of this for the first time and promoting
1: the use of some no kidding i mean they have this nfl data bowl and this whole competition at the combine are you heading to that the
0: -hmm. the data bowl is you're talking to
1: her what's say Uh, say that again what's your role
0: I'm the, well. I'm a
1: host and a judge. <laughs> okay. You're the host and the judge. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to tweet our own horn because my former PhD student, our former PhD student, is in the is in the open division as a finalist, Samir Deshpanda, and three of my current undergraduates are finalists as well Let's from go. from Morton. I'm very
4: excited. So <laughs> you got You
1: got to make sure you. you
4: you're
0: coming to the war. You're coming to the J.W. America. I'm telling my like coaches and people. I'm like, you're coming. You're going to find people to hire. You're going to have so much fun. They're like, oh, that's Finish great. Math. And I was like, oh heck yes. You're right. It is math. Let's go.
2: Okay, so Cynthia, this is um, this is going to go down in Indianapolis Combine weekend. Is that's that right. right. So yep. and, and you're Wednesday. And, okay, the Wednesday. Wednesday.
1: It's exactly yep, Wednesday. Wednesday. You got it.
2: Okay, so that's exciting. So you you but 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 you're kind of a, I mean you're at such an interesting place because we've been talking about motion tracking. Really, since we started this show five years mm-hmm. ago and other sports are ahead of football and we've kind of been waiting for it to come because we, it's going to revolutionize things. And one of the most interesting things is that they're kind of making you have to make it up as you go. And so you're at this this intersection of media and NFL and technology and statistics that is creating this thing right now. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned so far? Because NFL has really just now gotten kind of public facing with this stuff. What have you learned so far and where do you think it's going?
0: So, the, the, in one word, it's empathy. You have to, if you're going to be useful in any capacity in the NFL and in any sport, but especially the NFL, because it's 11 different people moving on each side of the ball on every single snap, and it's a lot. So, you have to understand both what they're being told to do, how they've been taught, and what the coach cares about schematically and then map all those things together to tell the story. So you need, more so than basketball, in my opinion, and more so than baseball, in my opinion, you need to understand and have access to, at least in the beginning, to creating your stories, the stories you're trying to solve for. Like To me, I call them stories because that's the best way to put it, in my opinion, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to rush, if you're trying to if you're trying to be a team that focuses on outside zone rushing schemes so if you're trying to if you're trying to focus on or or maybe let's go with an easier example if you need your quarterback to be able to throw outside the numbers deep which is the hardest throw in yep. football yep right like if you need your quarterback to be able to do that your pass protection on your o line needs to reflect something that gives the quarterback enough time right the routes your receivers run Need to reflect something that gives them the separation required to get in the space with enough space to catch the ball. Yep. And the time needs to match what your quarterback's velocity and throwing angle and ability to read the defense is. Mm-hmm. Those three things, four things, five things, 16 things, in my opinion, it's a lot more than just, you know, making it that simple. Those are all a function of what your coach thinks and what your coach thinks the defense is going to do or likely to do.
4: Mm-hmm. Now
0: those are tricky things to map together. So when you're looking at spatial data just simply saying this this receiver has 5 yards of separation is not enough because one that doesn't tell me the route, two that doesn't tell me the situation is it second and 2 and you're and of course your receiver is going to have more space they're not playing they're going to play run there or whatever they guess run, you know, is it zone is it man you know, is Gronk on the field commanding the attention of an extra safety, right? Or are you alone in space? So, you know,
2: Cynthia, let me stop you real quickly. That yeah. I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic, and I think it's really interesting that that's your approach, especially given your background in math, because the way you're talking is kind of what you typically hear from uh industry uh, traditional industry practitioners like don't tell me about the fourth down chart you know it depends on what the wind is doing it depends on you know how we've been playing against these guys it depends on the weather conditions it depends on this it depends football on that. is
1: complicated is it, what it, i so like to say
2: it is complicated and and what i'm now but i want to be i want to be sympathetic to that perspective but there are obviously limits to it because you can complicate away the ability to say anything so how do you, because you're trained in this stuff? How do you find the balance between okay, we have to consider 16 factors, but you know we lost the ability to say anything when we went from nine factors to 16.
0: So the the whole the whole the best part is is that you can look at things backwards and like look for doppelgangers and not just human doppelgangers, but situational doppelgangers because most of these coaches come from trees and were taught in a certain way and they come from. They have, they have, you know, their you can learn their predispositions so you can like game them in the sense of, okay, like, look, I've been doing a lot of work with the Alliance this past few weeks, which is really fascinating and talk about technology advancements and lack you're, of data.
2: You're talking about the new football league that's been going on. Yes. We've been seeing it on our TVs the last couple of weeks. Oh yeah. Okay.
0: So it's a part, we, we, the NFL network was a lot of us, uh, talent wise are over there helping, but yep. I could tell you what Mike March's strategy was going to be because Mike March Marks is using the same strategy as he did when he was coaching, you know, everywhere. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not. He doesn't have Kurt Warner, and he doesn't have Marshall Falls and he doesn't have any receiver that was part of the greatest show on turf. But he's kind of running the same conceptual ideas,
4: mm-hmm.
0: and consequently, same with some of the defensive coaches I'm seeing from Mike Singletary principles that are very Mike Singletary like. Right. So you have a good, you have a good proxy for knowing what happened in the past, and then what has really helped me is to narrow things down into phases of the game and not not phases like, you know, passing, running, whatever. But like I I pretty much chop up the field because O lines do kind of only a functional a limited set of functional things. And then tight ends only do certain things. And then wide receivers do certain things and running backs do certain things. So I kinda go by sort of position group, but space on the field. Because when a team is in 11 personnel, meaning one running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers, they can be in 11 personnel but have two tight ends on the field because Rob Gronkowski could be lining up as a wide receiver. Mm -hmm. But I look for functional groups, and there's really only like five configurations pre-snap, and that narrows things down a lot. But what I really do well, and this is better than what I do with math and better than I do with coding, is I translate what they're doing from... I translate. Be, I'm a two-way translator. Mm-hmm. I translate what a coach is saying, what we see on the field, into easily digestible chunks, so that we can examine phase in in a certain way. So, like I said, with that eleven example, when you're in twelve personnel, which is two tight ends, it's actually really eleven personnel a lot. It's just disguised because Gronk has a, a tight end in, in. He's listed as a tight end in the in the playbook, but he's not in the media guide. But he's not really a tight end in this specific situation. Mm-hmm. So. When you narrow it down to the five pre snap formations that you can look at and the defense's adjustment, and really the defense, yeah, there's a lot of exotic fronts, but there's really only about four different things the defense can be reading pre snap. So even it just who's doing it may be different. Could be a linebacker, could be a defensive end, just depends on what the situation, you know, what the pre snap configuration is, but it's all disguised.
1: What really, what really interests me is that you're essentially talking about clustering the extremely yeah. complex configurations into what you were essentially identifying as five themes. My question to you is, how did you figure this out? Um, because is it because of intense knowledge of football? I mean, or is it from looking at the data, from discussions? Where did, yeah, you, these where did you come cl- up these with clusterings?
3: These? Kind of based on sort of how the players move on the field or is it more kind of informed by schemes that are kind of known through football history?
2: Hypothesis, it's it's your... You said your talent is pattern recognition and then pair that with what sounds like a willingness to really listen to guys in the game and coaches.
0: Yeah, so it's it's the the unsexy and very unfulfilling academic answer of it's a blend of both, Mm -hmm. so... Getting your ass sued out by a coach for making an overstatement, then you know your boundary. So to me, that's a good thing. It's like, not always a good thing. In the Hold on, moment,
2: Cynthia, but. give us give us that example. Give us an example of making of overclaiming something and then getting getting reamed for it.
0: Well, I really like nobody studies, Nobody had studied O line. Like O line is like I think like the most important thing that people think is the least sexy. So I was like, great. I'm never going to – like, Bucky's knowledge of quarterbacks and his scouting situation and be playing wide receiver, it's going to be a lot harder for me to convince him. I know a lot about wide receivers. But nobody's really doing anything in this O-line space. So okay. that's a good space for me to to, to start. So I spent – I went through 10 years of data just pass pro, so passing situations for O-lines. And I noticed with computer vision and, and with talking to people that O-lines that are bad, so passing offenses that allow their quarterback to be pressured or – people to get closer defenders to get closer to their quarterback the passing is worse for them and they win fewer games i have it can i can be a lot more specific than that but ultimately that's the concept i looked at and i went through 10 seasons of passing downs and i measured every single one with computer vision and i noticed that you know unfavorable leverage i can measure their back their butts their feet and so it's because they're getting unfavorable leverage so the, a guy was beating them. They were not staying low, well, and that's really what a wastebender is.
4: Wow, so okay.
0: I I came to that conclusion because Russ Grimm, who is a pro a Hall of Fame, yeah. you know, he played forever and he like coached forever too. Most recently with the Tennessee Titans as their O line coach, he was like, "There's nothing you can teach me about anyone that I don't already know when it comes to <laughs> O line." I was like, "You're right. There's not," but I can look at it a different way. And he sat there and he's like, "If you." figure out anything that you can do to wow me i'll buy you all the beer in in indianapolis i was like great i was like i'm i'm up i'm up for it so it took me three years to like really get something that made sense and then he's like well what what good is that for me after the fact and then you're like damn it he's right so then i figured out that you can core there's a strong correlation between offensive tackles hit in the first Ten split of their forty, which we have on TV, yeah. and they have it from the same angle, so I can measure it. Yeah. And being a, a waist bender, so if they can keep their big booties down for ten yards, right, they, they have more success in the NFL. Oh, hold on! So you're saying you're saying
2: you're saying it's not the time in that first ten yards. It's actually you're measuring how much they're bending when they're running. Yeah,
0: I don't care how fast it is. It's the form that, they have, that they're because they want their in that moment their mindset is burst. Which is like the beginning of a play, okay. right? Okay. And so, if they're able to keep their butt down for them through the burst, because I don't care if they stand way up at the end. If your alignment's running forty yards, like that's it, your your play sucks anyway, right? Like so,
4: <laughs> or is really run. good.
0: So, so the first ten split and their hit is there's a huge correlation. Yeah, that's like if you go back on NFL.com, you can Google, you can see Taylor Lewan. He went to Michigan. He's a tackle for the Tennessee Titans, and that was really where Russ like like he was like okay you're not full of crap now because both of his tackles jack conklin who's from michigan state and taylor one who had come from michigan their 40s were like perfect the first ten was
1: wow. down wow. and it
0: turned out that they were right and that's like, yeah. amazing
1: that's but amazing got, this is not that. in the combine data <laughs> i know right no well, and i
0: know combine data is crap for the most part but there are i i needed to find something that was predictive and as it turns out, that is actually something.
2: That's amazing. <laughs> Cynthia, sadly, tragically, we have to let you go. But um, we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. Especially, I should have said, calling in from the West Coast is such an early hour. It's a treat for oh, us to talk so with awesome you. Thank you. Um, yeah, and, thank you so much for having me. Well, we'd love to talk with you more down the road. We'll be be—we'll be watching what happens with uh, with the contest next week in Indy. Wish you the best with yes. that. And with all of your work, really. appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much. Of course. That was Cynthia Freeland. Cynthia, expert analytics um, person there with the NFL, with NFL media, terrifically interesting. You can follow her, by the way, her Twitter handle, at C. Freeland, at C-F-R-E-L-U-N-D, at C. Freeland. She does all the NFL.com stuff. and She's on TV with those shows. She's involved with the AAF. She's obviously in the middle of the motion tracking kind of revolution. They call it Next Generation Stats.
1: Yeah, but what interested me is she, she said she was looking at this for 10 years, and I didn't realize the they had data like this that went back any distance at all so it must be from video and i don't even know what that looks like i was just my yeah, mouth was we, open i know we during we, this interview in a way that i haven't done in a long time
2: well we we needed more time with there for one uh, what's true i know about the ngs the next generation stats is that they've had it for more years than they've been releasing it for mm-hmm. a long time they they didn't release it to teams and then they released it um, you only got data on your side of the ball, which mm-hmm. is a weird thing to think about. It's only this past season that everyone's had full access to these things. So I don't I don't know exactly what data she's referring to, but I do know that they've had more than has been available for a while. Anything else jumping out of about that conversation? So she's going to be the host of the contest. So this, what was the name of the contest? The, the NFL
1: NFL Data Bowl.
2: NFL Data Bowl. So our friend Michael Lopez went in there to kind of head up stats for the for the NFL. And I don't know who came up with the idea, but they want to do a big uh, hackathon, essentially. And we've got some penned teams that yeah. are in the finals. The finals are going to be at the combine, the, the draft combine, which, of course, is every year right. in Indianapolis. It happens to be next week, late next week, and into the weekend. So, in the front part of that schedule, they're going to do this data ball in Indianapolis. And Cynthia, our are, are, are just is the judge. guest, uh, she's the host. She's the host of the event. I'm sure there are multiple judges. Um, all right, so that's exciting. That was a, She's fired up, man. She knows a few things, and she's fired up. And I'm telling you, that is such an interesting intersection right now, like NFL stats. And it's a combination of they're finally pushing these things out. They've got this interesting data. It's rich. It's not yet sorted. People are still making sense of it. And they're pushing it. its data forward for the first time. It's such an interesting moment.
3: Yeah, and she's at such an interesting sort of position to kind of connect – I mean, to have the kind of – analytics and kind of coding chops that she does, but also to have kind of a, a venue where we she she can talk to Mike Marts or talk to Mike Singletary yeah. or, or, or whoever about these types of things. That's something that very few people, frankly, right. are afforded of. Uh, so right. that's that's really unique.
2: And you know, she one of the main themes I took away from that conversation was the importance of those conversations. Yeah. That she comes in, you know, super tooled up from math from way back and some advanced degrees in analytics. And she really puts a premium on spending time with those guys and listening to those guys. And she talked about her chief contribution, or her, her, real, her real asset is the ability to translate. She said two way translation listen yeah. to those guys and make it into math, and then take the math and put it into language that the team Well, can.
1: what impressed me was her knowledge, not only of the coding and the math, and we expect that from analysts, but her knowledge of the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, a, I mean, yeah. remarkable. Well, and I'm, I'm
2: hearing some humility there. This is something we talk about and we like to preach is that this the humility that says, I don't know. And even if I even if I can run a regression over here or whatever these days counts as a regression, I don't know about the game. And I need to sit with Russ Grimm, as she mm-hmm. gave the example of Russ Grimm. And I love what they did. Grimm tells her, Yeah, okay, amazing, wh- It surprised me. Wow. <laughs> Great wow, story. wow me, honey, is basically what he said. And he she goes away and years later she comes up with
1: something that he didn't know. He, the first she, ten she yards tells, in the in the combine, the run in the forty how high their butt yes, is? it's not off the, the ground. speed.
2: It's not the speed that they run the first ten. These offensive linemen. It's the, it's the position of their butts in the first ten yards of this forty-yard dash, timed at the timed and photographed, videotaped at the combine. That reveals whether they're going to be a waste. Now, binder. can you explain
1: that? That was a word that was used that I sort of in, tried so, to infer what was meant, but didn't quite get it.
2: So, I what she's talking about is. An offensive lineman who does who doesn't lose leverage against the defensive the pass rusher and the way that they usually lose leverage is that the pass rusher comes in lower than they are and so I think she's talking about waist bending being a good thing which is you no, it, it's probably you it bend at the thing. waist which is a bad thing you because you got to get your butt down they want to get your butt down so you you, you stay as low as the rusher I believe it's what she's she talking about some version of that yeah, yeah. basically it's a lot of whether it's through. your
3: waist being bent. By the defender, or you're bending else, bending I, I, the defender's waist.
2: I think but what you want is way, you want to be low, but yeah. you don't want to get low by bending at the waist. You want to get yeah. low by having your butt down. So you can't. You don't have any leverage if you just bend over at the waist. That's what that sounds. Yeah. That's my that's my intuition for it. Okay, guys, let's change gears a little bit. There are a few other things I want to check in with you about on the NFL front. Anyone paying attention to the Antonio Brown saga? Do we just yeah, have to have I'm paying a drama attention
3: to the Antonio Brown because saga? Because you
2: like soap operas or because you're interested from a football perspective? Can you uh, both.
3: Both in, in are, the sense that, you know, it's it's rare that I think somebody of that talent level is kind of available. Uh,
2: arguably the best receiver in the NFL. Yeah, Some I mean, people
3: think certainly top
2: five.
1: And how much of a Still, career does he have Yeah, left? yeah. He's oh, totally, yeah. I mean, he's, he's not thirty-one. That old. He's yeah. young.
2: He's kind of in his prime. Yeah. And, but he's kind of had a falling out with the Steelers and really raising hell. And now hmm. he says he wants guaranteed yeah. money, and it's kind of a mess. And you know, I mean, I think
3: the Steelers over the last couple of years is kind of an interesting case study. And just, I mean, they they're basically going to lose their two best. But players. what are you supposed to
2: do? You got to. I mean, one of the well, things we've learned from your guys in New England is that you're ruthless in who you let go, and you're ruthless in what crap you put up with. Yeah. And are you are you really supposed I'm, to put up with these kinds of – I mean these kinds well,
3: of – Well, no, but I mean uh, – and again, we this is not really particularly an analytics discussion, I don't think. But um, you have to look at sort of how this whole situation arose. Like why is Antonio Brown suddenly having this kind of melt – anti-Steelers meltdown? Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe part of the reason, you know, part of the reason the Patriots can pull this off is that they're sort of like the, the the players buy into whatever system and structure is there in a way that is not happening necessarily in other organizations. Yeah, I, I agree. The right? Steelers.
2: I mean, if you if you look at, look, there's so much regression to the mean in yeah. football. I mean, top teams are always you know mediocre the next year. Happens all the time. You know, free agency is a free market. The draft, you know, outperforming one one team outperforming another in the NFL draft is mostly chance. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a hard thing. It's not that they're not good at their job. It's just that there's so much difficulty in predicting and, there's, and, there's, and they're all kind of equally good. There's so much chance. How are you supposed to maintain an edge year over year in yeah. the NFL? Some teams do. And sometimes it's with a quarterback or an, or an all-timer of a coach like the Pats. Sometimes it's with the organization. And you, if you look at who's done it over the years, yeah. you got to say Steelers have done it. No, Steelers no, that's right. It. St- and this this is
3: it. what kind of fascinates me is because I I, I I usually put the Steelers into the like this g- cluster of organizations that seem to have this kind of stability yep. Yep. and and professionalism. Yep and And, but you know right now we 're kind of sort of seeing somewhat of a meltdown. It seems and like know, a, and you don't and, know
2: you don't know whether but, it's organizational or whether it's a couple of a couple of individuals i mean it's going to happen sometimes mm-hmm. and we don't know we don't know yeah. from the outside which one it is that's right that's right no, oh, and
3: i I think that with Antonio Brown especially like having some a, a receiver of that talent level hit the kind of deep be available is is pretty unique. I I think another thing that kind of fascinates me about this particular situation is that the Steelers have not really said much about, you know, Antonio Brown's been doing most of the talking, but the one thing the Steelers have said is that they are ruling out trading him to any of their divisional teams, so they're they're not going to trade him with Cleveland, Cincinnati or Baltimore, and also New England.
2: Those are the four all, teams. All reasonable. That's utterly reasonable.
3: I just yeah, to rule out teams. So what happened? I mean, I under I understand the idea of that. The optics of I mean, they can, of, of they, can that. Bear the,
2: they bear the cost. It's their choice. It's their utility function. I understand.
3: I just I I feel like they're kind of that is somewhat of a. Why would you hamstring yourself? Because With those that. are the biggest competitions. I mean, you can. How many?
2: They go through those teams every year, or else they don't go to the Super Bowl. You're just mad because your team likes to take these no, castaways. No. Yeah, well, no, these, I mean, these, 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 these Tony Brown is not
3: your typical cast. Well, away. they take malcontents
2: yeah. all the time. Belichick believes they've got but, a culture. This is a serious thing. Yeah. Belichick believes they have a culture that they can bring anybody in. Yeah. And and rein them in essentially, so he can yeah. take your guy who's who's upset in the apple cart in your locker room. We, he won't in ours. And they've gotten away with it sometimes, and then sometimes they don't. But he tries that again and again, and it wouldn't surprise me if he tried it with he, Antonio Brown.
3: He, I just think, you know, to, to, to not tra- – why, why do teams not trade within division more? I mean, I understand that oh, they are a, taking on some amount of risk, but it, 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 it's not – They've
2: got 28 other teams they can trade with. Why would they bother with that?
3: Well, I mean, if what if those teams are the right fit?
2: You, you can't sell Antonio Brown. Are you kidding me? They don't have to be desperate to sell Antonio Brown. New How, England, New England
3: in, in two thousand and You can only one. come from
2: one place on this, and that is you want them from the past.
1: You're mad no, no, you're, no, no, no. your team is on I'll that list. I'll give you an
3: example.
1: With can New they e- trade it and then trade back? I mean, what's, can yeah, you yeah, trade I mean, to one team and then the trade can turn around and turn I mean, Yes, you can do that. It's But they can get them, just not directly. No, no this is not really about New <laughs>
3: England. Uh, this actually is not, on- honestly, about New England getting Antonio Brown. I mean, that would be very nice, but unrealistic. I think it is about um, this kind of idea that you- a trade can be a win for both teams. Sure. It usually, is right and yeah. and. You know, to kind of close out, like, what if the optimal trade is one seven, with the One-eighth
2: one of the league. I'm, I'm one One-eighth of the league. Come on. Yeah, okay. I'm not so,
3: getting a lot of sympathy from my hand Ky- Kyler
2: Murray, the, 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 draft, the draft prognosticators have him all over. We talked about this last week. All so it's over, kind of from interesting. top five to we had second up, round. We might have had an over-under on this. So it is interesting. The highest we're seeing on anybody's boards are number four to the Raiders. Wouldn't it be Raider-esque to jump up there and take Kyler Murray? I mean, that's that. What
1: do you mean by that? Dumb.
2: I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go out as far as say. That, I mean, they've done some dumb things over the years, but that that they've done a lot of dumb crazy. Things but it's uh, unorthodox. Yeah, unortho- and risky. Unorthodox and risky. That's, I would say those are
1: Raider-esque well, qualities. He, uh, Boros, his agent, said he's going to training camp. I mean, spring training for for the A's. Oh, really? And it's interesting I because, frankly, if he goes in the top five, footballists, the done deal. If he goes late in the second round, or even mid second round, or maybe even in the end of the first round, the the money is all of a sudden just a lot lower. It's comparable, mm-hmm. and but then he, he might seems, be he, he might seems, be sitting behind another quarterback and another, and may not play for a couple years. And he
2: seems to care though. He's got the bug. I think this guy's got the football bug. He wants to play football. I think he wants
1: to – I mean, I think he wants to play anything. I mean, and he's, he's well, carrying – he, Yeah, How, would you yeah, either I, sit
2: for one year in the NFL and get your chances on Sundays or play a few years of minor freaking league baseball?
3: Well, that uh, – it's such an interesting calculation for to try and do like sort of an expected – like, I mean, even if he sort of was optimized – take his kind of desire, sporting desire out of it, which we can only guess at – to try and opt, uh, kind of calculate like the optimal expected earnings or something like that. Yeah. When you have such different yeah. kind of paths Expecting to professionalism wrong... in both sports, I mean, it's such an interesting moment, right?
2: calculation. Yeah, but he's not. He's,
1: he's got a. He's got a, a lot of opportunity with the A's. A lot. You know, he could play them both. I mean, that's yeah, a great thing. Both, both, Bo yeah. But I mean, <laughs> I, but again, you, I mean, even
3: uh, what w- having a lot of opportunities with the A's. You're saying that because well, they don't have you know the. You know, they don't necessarily They'll promote
1: him quickly, I think. I mean, that's but, what I But by
3: prone him quickly, we're talking two or three years, probably, right? Uh, well, I mean, he's not going to go, he's not going to be at the major league level in a year. Well, we should have an over under on that, so I guess that would be a fun you. one. He
2: can't, <laughs> he can't come back to the NFL. He can always go to MLB, at least yeah. for True. a few years. True. I, I but gotta, uh, no, the question gotta gotta I'm asking
1: out. is where? where does, how do much of his decision is affected by his draft position? Mm. And I'm arguing that if he goes in the first round, he's going to play football. If the The other side of it wins out, and he goes late in the second round. I think baseball is still a yeah, serious I think option. The,
2: the chance of him going falling out of the first round are really really low. Okay, you know, anything can happen in the next couple of months. Things do happen late in the cycle, but I, well, I would say I would put it at ninety percent that he goes in the first round. Right. Let me give you one other story that caught my eye. It's in our rundown, and it's off the five thirty eight website. John Morant, have you guys heard of John Morant? Not until, yeah,
1: not until I saw it in the rundown.
2: NCAA, <laughs> NCAA player. Here's it. I
3: actually randomly caught him on TV the, uh, uh, like, uh, late last
1: week. Because Murray State is on all the time. Well, so he,
2: <laughs> here's a trivia question for you. Do you yeah. even know where Murray State is?
1: No. <laughs> Shane? I lose. Is it Ohio? You're
2: close. Oh. It's Kentucky. It's this uh, very, very western toe, the very okay. western toe of Kentucky. All right. Um, it's, it's in Murray, south Kentucky. south of Ohio, okay. So, I think this is the reason I want to bring it up is because I think this is worth like going out of your way to watch and coming out of football and kind of warming up to the other sports and it takes a while. You got to get kind of used to not being football. And here's a story. I think that kind of I mean, look, unfortunately, he's not playing for the team will go to the tournament. I don't know
1: how well they'll do, but. Will it? I mean, do they play sufficiently strong competition no. to warrant yeah. anything? Yeah,
2: well, it's 64 teams go. we yep. 68 yeah. or whatever the heck, and they've got they've got a good team. But this guy, so people are forecasting he's going to be a top five in, in NBA draft pick. He's only 6'3", and so he's a guy who's got a lot of athleticism. What you see first when you read about him or watch him or is, is, is work around the rim. He's got, he's, he, yeah. he's got a good dunk. He's got this tomahawk thing that's pretty spectacular. But what he's even better known for Are his assists? So he's. I think he's the first player since they've been tracking these things to have 20 points a game and over 10 assists a game. You might not have known that that's never been done, but it's never been done. This guy averages like 11 assists a game, and they're not. They're not like boring assists. This guy passes. You haven't seen guys pass like this. I don't know since like Magic Johnson or something. It's really, really fun to watch. The 538 site ran a little comparison of the 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 attendance at these basketball games for teams they play. So the average home attendance for teams... Um, when Murray State's not playing them, versus when Murray State comes to town, and the average is more than a hundred percent, they're doubling the attendance. All their other opponents are doubling their home attendance when Murray State comes. It makes out. sense. So, look,
1: you're looking at a former M- a NBA pre- player, a future, not star, a
2: but it's more than just that. It's more than just that. It it's that he plays from yeah. what Lillac I mean. Guy, he plays. I, I, I watched fun, him for huh? like twenty minutes.
3: Yeah. The guy's a highlight reel. I mean, he really is. And, but that's kind of what you look for.
2: in, yeah. in basketball. It's super it's exciting. A,
3: it's fun, fun. I hope. I hope Murray. I mean. You know, the, I, I hope Murray State makes a run in the tournament just so I can watch this guy a little
2: bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of exciting basketball, we're down to just a couple of minutes, but did you, well, you know, let's skip the All-Star game. It really wasn't worth doing anyway, was it, the All-Star game? Nah. Um, Kevin Durant, MVP. It's an exhibition. Happy to, happy to get that. Okay, just a couple of minutes. We've got to do a little over-under. We've got to put a couple picks on the books. Yep. need to do this on a regular basis. We broke down our records last time. By the way, we're going to get better about measuring that. We did better head-to-head. We, we're going to come up with a... Wharton Moneyball-approved method for scoring these things. But we are scoring. We do have the 2000. I've got the 2018 belt. We'll come up with ways to yeah, do it better Yeah, asterisks on that because There's it was small pre- Head-to-head right. head with me. Pre, Didn't win. Head pre, head with, okay, with, we're going to sort, go <laughs> sort these details. Okay, let me give you a couple quick ones. Over under $325.5 million for Bryce Harper. That was Stanton's total over 13 years. Three twenty five point five for Harper's final contract.
3: So we're sp- kind of making this guess based not not, know. not knowing the that's length right. of the contract right. or anything right. like that. A total um, dollar value. Yep. I am going to go under. I'm. G- I think people
1: are going to look at Machado. Caden, what say do you think? Harper's less valuable. Make you jump in first. I'm going over. I was. Uh, my baseball picks historically were the worst picks I made. Well, you don't know much about baseball. This whole that's kind of weakness, weakness, for right? you. The more yeah. the more expert
2: you are, the worse you you are. I'm going over. Okay, two overs and an under. Audie, you have to lead this one off. How many years until there's a universal designated hitter? Perfect that Audie leads this. Yeah. Over. The, the over-under is three, three and a half years. Over. That's motivated reasoning. Shane? Um,
3: I'm going to take over, too, because there's a lot of people like Audie. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm,
2: I'm going over as well, and that's a kind of a sad thing, because God almighty, the game could use it. Okay, guys, I don't know if we can do this. Padres. One. Wins for the Padres. 79.5 wins for the Padres. This is Manny Machado's new team. Um, and that's me first, I guess. I have to go first because I haven't gone first yet. Uh, Machado's going to do it for him, man. Yes, over. I'm going over because Machado. (laughs) I'm going to go over as well because
3: I think most of the teams in that division have stepped back this offseason as opposed
2: to forward. That's a
1: sophisticated answer right there. I'm going to go over. It's a, good, it's a good number, by it's the way. 79.5 is a good number. I'm going to go over as well, but I'm, I'm uh, probably the least confident of okay. that. I mean, I think 66 is for the wins last year. And there is a lot of regression to 80, 81, but... Mm, dang, you're about to tuck me out of it. I am. No, no
2: excitement. I'm going to go SoCal, man. Let's see it. Let's see some wins down there. All right, guys. That has been another two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man around here, Daniel Bruno, Dion Simpkins in the back, pound of the bonbons. Always appreciate the support back there, man. We will be back next week, some combination of us here every Wednesday morning. You should join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports.
4: For more insight
0: from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.